Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Let's just call him All Black Everything. Because when I met him, that's what he was wearing. Black hats, black hoodie, black jeans, black shell toe kicks. And he immediately made an impression on me because I had never seen a white man commit to a monochromatic color scheme outside of a Backstreet Boys video. But I never thought that that impression would be romantic or sexual. I mean, guys, come on. He was old. He was really old. Old. He was so old, I was 17 and he was 24. Ancient. But when I turned 22 and he's around 29, he asked me if I would like to go hang out sometime. And I say, sure, fine, whatever. Not even thinking about it. So we go to bar, to bar, to bar, until we land at the illustrious Patty Boom Booms. Now, Patty Boom Booms is a D.C.-based club where you can get your Jamaican patties on the first floor and your Boom Boom on the second floor. And when we walk in, we immediately stand out because he's the only white guy in the room. And I am probably the only black person that's not of West Indian descent. But you know what? We hightail it straight to the bar. And after the rum starts flowing and flowing, we are all family in that room. And so we go upstairs, and we start dancing, and the reggae is pumping, and guys, it's like a movie. Everything slows down. And he looks at me, and I look at him, and we kiss right there on the dance floor.
Uh, so yeah, we start um hanging out. Take that as you will. Um, and after a few months, I start really liking this guy. I mean, he's really smart and funny and talented, and I think that it's mutual. Once he starts asking me to go to dinner with his family or go hang out with his friends, and after our first big fight, he apologizes by giving me a pair of beautiful earrings, and I'm touched. This is the first time a guy I really like has ever given me a piece of jewelry. And they're beautiful. They're handmade. They're my favorite color of emerald green. But they're in the shape of Africa. And I'm just like, did this white man just give me Africa? It's not weird. It's not weird. It's totally not weird. I mean, but then... A few weeks later, I asked him for a T-shirt or something so I could go to sleep. I forgot my pajamas at home. And he says, oh, yeah, um, yeah, I got something for you. It's going to look real sexy. And then he pulls out this big, red, beautiful dashiki. Now, for those who don't know what a dashiki is, it's this. It's not weird. It's weird. It's weird. Totally weird. So eventually I confront him about it. And he says like, um, I don't think it's a problem for white people to be interested in African culture. And like, what are you like? Do you have a problem with your blackness or something? (gasps) How dare you? And then we just start fighting, and that fighting only gets worse once I found out about the sexy Japanese-American activist or the talented but slightly broken dancer or the entire South Asian section of women. And I look at all these girls, including the other black girl who's still an undergrad, and I wonder, does he really like me? Or is dating me just another way to get a little bit closer to all black everything? I get my answer. A few months later, we have fought and fought and fought. We are not talking, but I miss him. I miss his face. I miss his dimples. And I go on Facebook just to, just to see his face. And instead of clicking right to see the new pictures, I click left. And I see the old pictures, including a picture of college-aged him with his arms wrapped around a thin, beautiful brown woman. And his hair thin and beautiful and brown, somehow magically woven into cornrows. And I felt nauseous. And eventually, I have to accept the situation for what it is. Though it's clear that I can be attracted to a white man, that I can have feelings for a white man, I don't know if I could ever really date another white man again. I think a part of me would always wonder, So when it comes to my future relationships, I'm going to make sure that my partners are a different kind of all black everything. The Cows, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Tuesday, September 15th, 2015. So I have been told uh, on this date in 1963, the Birmingham church was bombed. Talked about that many times before on this date. Moving forward, uh, the book club uh, this Friday, uh, for folks who are keeping up, uh, Gary Riblin, Katrina, After the Flood, 
Uh, we were right, I think we're right at the end of chapter four, so we'll finish that off and be going into chapter five uh, this Friday. Uh, entertaining, constructive reading. Uh, hopefully folks are uh, keeping up and are getting constructive information, but this Friday, same program time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, the cows. Uh, the program today, I think folks uh, who've been at least listening for a few days uh, heard us uh, discuss this segment on the program, uh, I think two Saturdays ago, on the compensatory call-in. Uh, we were uh, reviewing the segment. I think it got a lot of attention. Uh, it was published uh, at the Washington Post uh, earlier this month. Uh, it was part of a performance piece uh, that our guest did uh, out in the D.C. area during uh, the summer of 2015. And uh, this, as I've said consistently, one of folks' uh, favorite subject matters, uh, Area 8, uh, in the system of racism, uh, sexual intercourse, and a lot of the things that uh, come up uh, with regards to white people, non-white people engaging in any sort of uh, sexual activity, uh, something that we've discussed before, generates uh, lots of fireworks, lots of literature on a regular basis, uh, but I think it also can really uh, reveal a lot of accurate information about the uh, power dynamics of racism, white supremacy, uh, and uh, importantly, uh, what it means to be white. Uh, hopefully folks will keep all that in mind as we proceed. Uh, our guest for today's broadcast, uh, she is the author of the segment that you just heard. Again, you can check it out at the Washington Post. I think it's on YouTube as well. If you uh, have difficulties, can't track it down, let me know and I will make sure I put it in your hands. Uh, it should be linked if you're listening to the broadcast. It should be right there, so you can click it. Uh, but she is a master's student in theater and performance studies. Uh, her research interests include intersectionality, gender and women's studies, African-American studies, theater for cultural and social awareness, sexuality and art as a method of healing from trauma. Uh, she uh, graduated alumnus, uh, University of Wisconsin. I looked at that and was like, whoa, she was in... Uh, Lacrosse. I was in Lacrosse for the uh, White Privilege Conference uh, in 2010. I think that was the first time I'd ever been to uh, Wisconsin. If she was in the air, I have to see if she was at the White Privilege Conference when all that was going down way back in uh, 2010. Real privilege to have her on the program. Uh, she's also written about uh, Octavia Butler uh, for folks who listen to the program and or are readers, particularly sci-fi readers. I'm sure you know the name Octavia Butler. We've discussed Kindred on the program before. She's written about that as well. Real pleasure to have her on the program. I think she uh, splits time between the D.C. area and New York, uh, joining us live. Our guest, I hope I'm going to make an effort to get her name correctly and she can uh, set me straight if I uh, do not get it correct. Uh, Gethsemane Heron. Uh, Ms. Heron, are you with us? I am on, and um, my name has got so many Heron, but that was a very uh, admirable attempt. I really appreciate it. Get an F. I'll take my F. Can you say it for me one more time? <laughs> Gethsemane Heron. Gethsemane Heron. Did I say it correctly? Yes. Yeah, it sounded like it. Gethsemane Heron. Right on. If I mispronounce, set me straight. <laughs> set me straight. I'm going to do my best. Uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on the program. As I said, real privilege to uh, have you in to uh, discuss your piece and just your views uh, on the system of racism. Uh, for our listeners, this might be their first time uh, hearing from you. Anything that you think would be helpful for folks to know about you as we get started? 
Well, sure. My name's Epsimony. I was born and raised in the Washington, D.C. area, and I've always had uh, a great interest in literature and writing, especially writing as a method of self-expression. When I was a teenager, I was involved in a program called City at Peace, um, a Washington, D.C.-based program that used tools to analyze was internalized racism, interpersonal racism, institutionalized racism, adultism, power, sexism, and using this um, framework, utilizing what was happening in our own lives as teenagers um, in the D.C. area to write our own play about our particular lives. So we actually got to have very difficult and very necessary conversations about people in places that we necessarily didn't have personal experience with. Everybody in that room, I believe it was a group of 50 kids, um, ages 13 to 19, came from their own unique path of life. Some were really privileged, um, white, black, Latina people in the D.C. area who had their own sports cars. Some people were the children of drug addicts. But it was a room where we really focused on creating a safe space to ask difficult questions, to analyze what we have been taught about ourselves, others, and the world around us, um, and to create um, amnesty, freedom, um, or at least patience as we decided to learn about our own prejudices and how that was influenced by power structures in the United States. After that, I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, where I was a participant of the uh, First Wave Hip Hop and Urban Arts Learning Community, um, a program that gives scholarships um, to student artists. So primarily we were poets, but many people dabbled in other forms of art. There were visual artists, there were dancers, there were singers, there were MCs, um, there were theater practitioners. And so that was, um, that paid my tuition in undergrad and I started learning more about sexism and feminism and womanism and what did that mean in terms of intersectionality? How did me experiencing life as a young cisgender privileged, English-speaking, African-American women, um, how did that affect my life and how did that affect others? And so I am very happy to be with you today, and that's pretty much how I got here. Right on, right on. I think you just shared, uh, for folks who have not seen you, you are African-American female, black female, is that correct? Correct. Right on. Uh, this program, Context of White Supremacy, uh, we try to get definitions uh, for terms uh, established just to make sure that we, everybody has an understanding of, of what they mean when we use these terms. Uh, what sure. is your definition of the term racism? What do you mean when you say racism? For me, I really like utilizing what I understand to be, and of course I'm no expert on the matter and I'm still learning about it every day, but I really enjoy Beverly Tatum's um, definition of racism, um, which I believe is a which is defined as a system of power um, that benefits one particular group over. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Over the um, detriment to other people or groups, and it's not necessarily something that's prejudicial. Um, prejudice is sort of a uh, a product of racism. It's a, it's a system of power that benefits people uh, that are white in this country. And that's not necessarily to say that um, meritocracy is not existed in this country. It does not to say that um, there aren't many brown people and women of color that do really well, but there is a system that helps people um, benefit from what this country can offer them that is not offered to everybody. 
that's my personal definition, but it's not necessarily as um, specific as I would like it to be. Oh, okay. Right on. Right on. Um, the definition that I use um, on this program, uh, well, number one, I sure. use the term uh, racism and the term white supremacy. I use those two terms as synonyms, and I use the same definition for both terms. Uh, so the definition I okay. use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, do you think that's an accurate definition? Do you think such a system exists? Do you mind saying that again, please? Yes, ma'am. Uh, it is Thank you. a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Hmm. I'm not quite sure I agree. I think that system definitely exists, and I think it definitely is global, but I don't believe that system is made up of people who go out of their way, at least all people who go out of their way to abuse and denigrate people who classify as or, um, who are classified as non-white. I believe that it is definitely a huge power structure. Um, that white people benefit from simply because they are born into it. I don't necessarily believe that everybody who is born into racism make it their business to subjugate and denigrate people of color. Okay. Do you think you can be a white person and not practice racism? I think it would depend on the definition of practice. I think that racism is an inheritance, unfortunately, um, for white people. Um, and I think that there are so many white people, because I, I know so many white allies who make it a point to not practice that, um, to constantly be checking themselves and their privilege and their racism. But I think it's very hard to be a white person and not have um, inherited some racism. When you say inherited some racism, what does that mean? I think that could be anything from a prejudicial attitude on seeing as someone, uh, for seeing a, a person of color or um, a person who doesn't have the uh, systematic benefits that you do, um, as less than, I think it could be something as innocuous as saying when you believe white people, not white people, black people, or people of color should do to get, to lift themselves up out of the bootstraps of oppression. I think that for me, racism is so complex and finely tuned and I am still so um, new in my analysis of it. I think it's, I don't know, I think it's, I'm sorry, I'm losing my train of thought. I think that for me, it is very, very difficult to see a white person who has not benefited from racism in some way. Hmm. I don't know if I answered your question. I apologize. Oh, for sure. no apology. No apology. Absolutely. Absolutely. You did answer uh, my question. Thank you. Um, just um, my, my response, that's uh, one of the terms I encourage our listeners uh, to pay attention to, the term benefit. 
Uh, and I'm still learning mm-hmm. too. That's you said that early on. I'm still learning too. I really appreciate that. Um, mm-hmm. Just you know, we're all of us. We're still learning, trying to get a, a handle on how to deal with this. What's the best way to respond? So I'm still learning too. Sure. Um, sure. One of the things as I'm learning, one of the things that I do try to uh, pay attention to is the way that people use terms. And I've noted Mm -hmm. that uh, many, many, I would say the vast majority of white people, um, they are much more comfortable. I would even say that they encourage discussing white supremacy, racism as benefits. Uh, unearned mm-hmm. goodies that white people get, mm-hmm. uh, their knapsack. Sure, just, unearned privileges. Right, that the white fa- uh, white privilege fairy comes in and just brings them all these little goodies and fills up their little mm-hmm. knapsack while they're asleep. And in my view, I feel like that is incorrect because I feel like it gives a very passive framework for how we understand white people's involvement with this systemic mm-hmm. abuse of non-white people. And I've just, I've concluded that White people, uh, no, you don't necessarily have to be in the Klan, but white people are much more actively and consciously engaged in this process than they like to admit. And they have, I think, either out of fear, because we are being victimized constantly and or just confusion, combination of the two, but I think they've got a lot Mm -hmm. of us, their victims, to, even if we don't believe it, (laughs) we believe it or not, to at least repeat that that they are benefiting to get away from the, they are actively and consciously aware that this is not a problem of them not being aware. This is not even a problem of them just getting goodies. That this is, we are aware, we're engaged, we're, as the definition says, we're dedicated to the practice of uh, racism, mistreating black people, non-white people. Does that, does that make sense? Do you want to respond? It makes sense. Um, I personally don't think um, obviously, I hate generalizations, so I can't really um, argue about what the vast majority of white people believe. I think white people are people, and their beliefs um, and approaches to how racism operates or how they understand um, racism to be is as diverse as all people. Um, I personally, I'm not quite sure. I believe that the vast majority of white people who benefit from racism are actively um, committed to oppressing people who are of color. Right on, right on. Many, many people don't. I would, uh, that's, I would just encourage folks to ponder on, think about, you know, come to your own inclusions, conclusions. Uh, and I would, uh, make sure that included in that, if you're a white person, you're observing other white people, uh, commit acts of racism on the job in your family, uh, wherever it happens to be at, if you're seeing that and you're not doing anything, that is an act of racism. And that is active because mm-hmm. you're witnessing criminal activity and you're not doing anything. And as they love to say, they do benefit from this criminal enterprise. So you for sure are culpable. That would be active. So I would encourage folks to just ponder. I could be incorrect. Um, and then I think the question would be, what is the definition of active or what is the definition of passive? Um, are we going to utilize the definition of if we choose neutrality, we choose the five of the oppressor, which I think is valid and has and brings up very interesting questions about what does one do. Um, but I personally don't think that the, that the white people that I've known obviously cannot comment uh, on all white people don't necessarily see it that way. But I also do find it problematic that if a white person sees a great act of violence or um unfair, unjust treatment towards people of color, um, and they don't um, 
take up that mantle to comment and become an ally to people of color. I do think that's incredibly problematic, and I think it allows racism to continue to perpetuate. And so I don't necessarily see that as an active denial. I see it as a passive denial and one that's um, equally harmful. But I firmly believe in giving people amnesty and giving people room to grow and creating conversations where they don't necessarily feel attacked um, or so like their entire worldview is inaccurate where they're open to conversations so we can't talk about flaws in logic um, or flaws in interaction with people um, concerning racism. So I do find that, I find it to be passive, but I find it to be harmful, if that makes sense. Hmm. Wow, let's get to uh, the Washington Post piece that was published. Um, but I know it, it happens, not all the time, but I know sometimes it does happen where uh, the editors and other folks, they end up making the decision about what the piece is going to be uh, titled. Was was it your idea for what this uh, piece ended up being titled? I dated a man who was looking for all black everything, or did they did they ed- do some editing with the title? It was a collaboration. It was a collaboration between myself and Lisa Bonos, who is the editor of Soloish, a blog about unmarried life for the in the DC area for the Washington Post. Um, and I really felt that when we came to creating the title, I wanted to include the title of the story, which is All Black Everything. Um, and, ex- and Lisa wanted to expand upon that for people who ne- who weren't necessarily at live performances in the D.C. area. So making it a focus was like he wanted All Black Everything, including me, um, eventually tells you that I'm a woman, he's a man, we're in this heterosexual interaction, and perhaps this wanting of me is not necessarily completely based on who I am as a person. So it, I would say it was definitely a collaboration. Hmm. Okay. And we played the, the piece uh, as it was performed at the Washington Post. It's a little bit longer. Yeah. Uh, if you check out the performance from uh, that you did, uh, I guess, in August uh, this past summer, um, mm-hmm. you, in the piece, you, you talk about this white guy. You said that you all, you had met this guy, I guess, when you were a teen. You were 17, he was 24, and you had met him at that time. Is that true? Yep. Okay. And this, this piece, is this, is this based on something that actually happened? You actually experienced all this that you're talking about? Yeah, I experienced it all. Okay. <laughs> so you all met, he's 24, you're 17. How did you all meet? Oh, we met through mutual friends um, in the D.C. area. Um, and it was very much in passing. I believe it was at a show. Um, and it didn't really, like I was saying, the piece didn't really make an impact on me. Um, he wasn't overly flirtatious or rude. He was like, hi, I'm such and such. Okay, hi, but so many. And it was perfectly fine. And over the years, we would say hi to each other whenever I was in D.C. because I soon left D.C. to attend the University of Wisconsin. And then once I turned 22, um, we decided to hang out, and hanging out led to dating. So I was, yeah, I was, I was, I just turned 22 maybe four months before when we started hanging out. Okay. Uh, the piece that you did it as it was performed last month, um, did you say that he was flirting a little bit? Not You said not overly, but flirt, was he flirting at all when you all initially met when you were 17? Oh, sure, but he was flirting with a lot of people in the room. It was it was very much like, oh, I like your shirt. It looks nice. I would never say that it was uh, incredibly forward or sexual. It was it was more like, hi, how are you doing? I'm such and such. Wait, wait, let's keep in touch. But we never did. Okay. Sorry, it's like, um, it's like um, 
via Facebook, which I don't think really counts. Okay. <laughs> Fast forward five years, uh, 22, I guess he's 29 or thereabouts uh, mm-hmm. at this time. Um, mm-hmm. had, at that point, at 22 year old, uh, mm-hmm. did you, what was your understanding of racism at that time? Um, probably just as ambiguous as it is now. I'm constantly trying to read and have conversations with people from all different parts of life about racism. But I was, um, at Wisconsin, I want to direct backtrack a little bit. At Wisconsin, we have, um, we don't have minors, we have certificates. And I had um, received a certificate in gender and women's studies. I tried to choose as many cross-listed classes in gender and women's studies and African-American studies so I could focus on that intersection between blackness and um, being a woman because that's how I experienced the world. So I, I viewed racism as a system of power that can bar black people from, let's say, um, particular um, areas in a neighborhood and, uh, from redlining, from housing projects, from universities as corporations that though they provide a great service and skills to their area, they can also bar people from those, um, those services, whether that be cost, uh, cost prohibitive or not. Um, and so I was just learning as much as I could. Did you? But it was still quite foggy. Okay. Okay. Did you have any thought like, well, I should maybe be suspicious of this guy. He's white. Uh, he, he could be racist. Did that come into your mind at any point? No, I had dated white people before. I had dated black people before. And I grew up in a very um, racially inclusive area of D.C., um, a very uh, racially diverse area of D.C. And after City at Peace, I began to see white people as, yes, people who may have benefits and privileges that they didn't necessarily earn, but people who were people who were struggling with things like depression or things like not necessarily being able-bodied or um, pressure to succeed academically, which I felt, or pressure to find a partner. So I didn't necessarily see um, a system of power as a reason to not interact with a white person as long as they were also aware um, of how racism operated. We could totally talk. We could totally date. Hmm. Had your uh, like family members or any folks... Uh, that like meant, well, I won't say mentor. people that had a, a influence on you, impact on you growing up. Did anybody uh, give you any any commentary or warnings like, you know, hey, make sure you don't date a white guy. Or that's something I don't approve of. Did you hear anything like that growing up? Any, you know, suggestions to avoid dating white guys? Yes and no. I had heard that from a few family members um, and a few friends. Um, but I had also seen quite the opposite of having uncles who had married white women and those relationships being long and functional. Um, so I, I definitely experienced both. But I always decided that, you know, I was going to follow my own train of thought and find my own person um, and my own views on the, on the topic. Hmm. Okay. And this, uh, when I heard the other um, performance uh, that you did of this piece, mm-hmm. um, you said that I guess this was longer than I thought. I thought this was maybe some months, but it seemed like it was more than a year. Like, how long was this relationship? It was an on-off thing for two years. Okay, okay, okay. So, kind of, that seems kind of serious. Two years, like, that's a significant investment. Kind of serious? Um, I don't know. I don't want to speak for him, because obviously he's not on this program, and I had my own um, interaction with him, but 
sometimes it felt more serious. Sometimes it was incredibly casual. It was more often it was on, but it was definitely a significant emotional investment on my part. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Did you, was he, uh, you were saying the white people that were also aware that there is a system of power, white supremacy, racism. Did he demonstrate, oh yeah, I'm aware of racism. I know I'm white. Did he, you know, admit all this? Yes, definitely. Okay. And you all would have candid conversation about racism? Yeah. Hmm. What, I'm, uh, can you like t- time stamp us here? Like what time frame, what time period is this? Um, it depends on where we were in our interaction. We had it, the conversation several times and he was very much aware of benefiting from racism and the people in his family holding um, problematic views and constantly trying to better himself with his own thoughts about racism. Um, but of course he slipped up at times and I feel like the story definitely demonstrated that slipping up, um, where an interest in black culture, um, and people of color, um, and their cultures and their stories overlapped until for me began to feel like sexual fetishization, but he was very much aware of racism, how it worked and really focused on trying to end it. Hmm. Okay. Um, you said, I guess you all talked and, and he was candid about the fact that his parents, you said, had some problematic views. Did any of his, did any of his parents or any of his white family members have a problem with you all being together? No, I actually, when he uh, invited me to meet his parents, I made a decision not to take that. It's not, and it wasn't because he was um, a white man. It was because when it came, when it comes to meeting family, uh, I'm a firm believer that we have to be on the uh, steady ground for me to do that, especially since he had younger um, family members, let's say nieces, nephews, cousins, what have you, that would also be around. And I remember being a child and being around my older cousins when they were dating their significant others as teenagers and people in their early 20s and making that strong attachment to this person and then the relationship ending and that person just being absent. So when it became time to, uh, you know, meet the folks, I, I backed off because I wasn't quite sure where we were going to, to be. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Hmm. Context of white supremacy. Uh, Miss hmm. Gethsemane, Heron, did I say it correctly? Heron, like the bird. Heron, Heron, like the bird, Heron. Hmm. Right on. Uh, folks have uh, questions you would like to ask, feel free, chime in. Uh, I know this is one of folks' enjoyable subject matters, uh, 641-715-3640, and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you have a question. Uh, so kind of an off and on thing, uh, you said more off than on. Um, you said you mm-hmm. felt like it was a significant emotional investment for you. Um, mm-hmm. didn't, you kind of backed off and it was time to meet the parents cause you weren't really sure, you know, how solid is this? Where are we really going? Uh, before we, you know, mm-hmm. make this type of, of commitment and going to meet family and all of that. Um, you said he, he admitted he had some, as you call them slip ups, uh, with regards to being a white person, uh, perhaps a moment of racism. Um, can mm-hmm. you, can you think of like one of the first times he had what you call a slip up? where it might have been an act of racism? There is a few that stand out, um, but out of 
respect for him and respect for the community I come from in D.C. Because there's a lot of people who know him. I'm going to respectfully decry. I just don't think it's right for me to talk about what he what he did. I think he should be the person to speak on his actions and labor them. Hmm. Does he know about the uh, performance piece that you put together? He does. Okay. <laughs> did he have commentary? Did he have thoughts about that? He had some commentary, and again, um, I made a decision that that conversation would be stayed between he and I, um, simply because uh, there are quite a few things in that piece that I know um, could be embarrassing to him. So, uh, in hindsight, I just wanted to keep things a little bit more private, but at the same time, I made sure that the things in the story, you know, I thought were fair, they didn't... Um, I didn't um, provide any identifying information. Um, but in terms of our conversation after the piece came out, I, I'd like to keep that private. Right on, right on. I guess at, at what point did you begin to think that this might not be fixable, uh, that you, you know, y'all might have to just do your own thing? Oh, oh, pretty early in the interaction, actually. But at the same time, you know, attraction and caring for people runs deep. So, it, I, I knew that it would be it wouldn't be something that would last forever, um, pretty early on. Um, but it was something that you know I was still willing to try because there were parts of him that were so wonderful. Hmm. hmm. Fascinating. <laughs> Fascinating. Wow. The um, and I mean, you just you, it seemed like there was more than one slip uh, in terms of him yeah. doing something that might have been racist. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. Like. Uh, I don't know that. Uh, like, do you have? Do you have ever think back and say, "Wow, I maybe should have stopped this sooner"? Like, you know, to just keep having these moments and and to get where it ended up. Do you ever think back? Hey, maybe we should have stopped this, you know, much earlier. Yeah, definitely. Um, in terms of his acts of racism, I decided to you know apply amnesty to give people room to grow. And if a bunch of people sat him down and talked to him about why this is problematic. Because so often it was well-intentioned, but it's only, uh, or a comment on racism that revealed racist thoughts, even if he didn't recognize them as such. Um, I know that he was constantly learning, constantly trying to get better. And so I forgave him because I thought that active work um, to get better. But, you know, as time went on, um, his, um, these acts of racism or these slip-ups became less and less frequent. Um, and other reason, and other issues in our interaction became the reason why we ended up breaking up, such as um, acts of sexism, which I I feel that most men that I know commit in some way, shape, or form, or you know, different views of what interaction should be. Should it be open? Should it be an open relationship? Should it be a monogamous relationship? Um, I'm significantly younger than he is. What does he want to be in five years versus where do I want to be in five years? So it just seemed like, you know, it was a, a long time coming that we needed to pursue other people. Hmm. In the uh, piece you were you were talking about, I guess, closer to the, the ending of all this, when you were looking at some of his Facebook photographs and seeing mm-hmm. some of the other females, non-white females that he had also been uh, involved with. Uh, and sure. You were saying it. I guess there was a picture at some point. He was with a black female that was an undergrad student, um, and this was—is that—is that accurate? An undergrad student, a black female that was an undergrad student. So there were two. So 
when I went on Facebook and looked at that photo, mm. um, the photo was with a black woman, but I believe they were both in undergrad at the time. This was from like nine years, ten years ago. How I got to this reach of Facebook, I have no idea, but I was committed <laughs> to see his face. Um, later on in a time when we had a, uh, a break in our interaction, I would say, um, we went to a same party. And I found out about a, a black woman um, who was still an undergrad at the time. And that was recently. That was last year. Okay. Okay. That, I don't know, that seems to me that at least would be a concern because it's seeming like a pattern of him pursuing or being interested in females, non-white females that are significantly long, uh, younger uh, than he is. I mean. Yeah. It definitely became an issue of concern because I began to think about what this, how does power interact in relationships. I definitely knew that um, his dating history was wide and varied. I knew some of his um, ex-girlfriends who were significantly older than him. I knew some of his ex-girlfriends that were white. But I definitely began to be a bit more doubtful when I saw me and I saw this other woman who, um, who, there's a, who aren't necessarily as, established in our particular careers who um, are women who are of color who are not as old as he is because I do believe age um, can lend one power in how our society works. So it definitely became a, uh, a warning sign, but I ignored a lot of warning signs because I just thought he was so amazing. And I think there's still good things about him, but it, it, it just isn't what I want to be in anymore. Right on. Right on. And again, gratitude. I really appreciate you coming on the program and sharing. I know it can be difficult to kind of relive some of these type episodes and be sharing them with strangers and, and the whole world. But I, it's fascinating. You can, you can learn a lot. Um, is there like one other warning sign that you can think of that you can be like, oh, man, that that was a signal that I should have paid more attention to? Yeah, there was a and this wasn't this didn't happen to me, but he had a. Uh, another female friend who he uh who had visited him from visited him from some other place pretty far i don't really remember where but um when she came to visit he and i started dating and he told me you know um i have this person coming i can't talk to you for two weeks because this person is coming like major warning signs <laughs> but of course i was very young <laughs> i was very young and very naive and i actually ended up ending it the first time because I think I might have broken up with him like four or five times before it really stuck. Um, that was a major warning sign and then I later found out that one, and during these two weeks, you know, he wouldn't even hold the girl's hand because he had started seeing me and he was afraid that I would see the two of them together. So, major, major warning sign. That poor girl, I think she really got her heart broken. Wow. That is awful. Mm. That is awful. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I mean, you said it was five times. Was it? Uh, I guess I don't know if it was the case every time. But was it when you would kind of end things and say this is not going to work out? Would he mm-hmm. kind of request to to kind of see if y'all could mend things and get back together, or did you just want to try and work it out again, or was it a mutual thing? So generally, I would be the, no. I think every time I was the person who ended it, and he'd be like, "What? Why?" Because he was happy where things were. It was working for him it wasn't working for me um and then a few times he'd be like well can we still be friends um you know you could always come back if you wanted to um 
there were definitely times where, you know, we didn't talk and where he was barred from contacting me and social media. But then over the month, I would relent. We start talking. We try to build a friendship. It would start all over again. Um, but generally, he was the person who was a, who was anti it ending, and I was the person who was for it ending. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. If uh, <laughs> would I be would I be incorrect if I compared him to Rufus's character in Kindred? Oh, I think that would be a very, very strong uh, comparison. I definitely do not see him as destructive um, or as abusive as Rufus. He never laid a hand on me. <laughs> he never raised me. Rufus was just me. I think the only thing they have in common is being white and being selfish. Um, but I don't necessarily see those two things as being sins, but I would never compare him to Rufus, no. Okay, okay. Uh, you have written... Oh, wait a minute before I even move forward. There was one uh, comment I did want to read from uh, the Washington Post before I ask about some of your writing on uh, Octavia Butler. Uh, sure. This, this person, uh, he wrote... Uh, you said that you would never date another white man again. It's great to blame billions of white men for that one fetishist. Beautiful mm -hmm. earrings, gift in the shape of Africa. Creepy mm -hmm. if given by a white man or white woman. Cool if given by a black man or a black woman. What about an Asian man or an Asian woman who gives such a gift? It's cool because he or she at least is a person of color, right? At least the person is halfway there in the DNA because it's all about the DNA for Heron. What is it for her former white partner? Subverting privileged white culture and foregrounding black culture. That's okay if you're a white progressive college teacher, but it's not cool if you're a white man. Saying you prefer blondes is racist fetishizing Nazis, but preferring brunettes, you must be racist since you have incipient jungle fever. Based on this one experience, I guess Heron wants to return to pre-loving the Virginia, times when everyone knew <laughs> their racial place and no one got a chance to fetishize, right? Hopefully she dates a strong Asian man and celebrates diversity since black women and Asian men Wait a minute, black since black women and Asian men are well, man, I'm reading the comment. It's, it's singular. Okay. <laughs> since black women and Asian men is a relative, relatively rare coupling, <laughs> and realizes there's more to the world than black and white. Right on. Last <laughs> bit. Your your response to this commenter. I read this earlier today, um, and at first I was just like, "Huh?" It just seemed full of nostril clutters. I really couldn't follow it because the comments to me or their comments didn't quite follow. Um, so I guess the best way to do it was to be go down point by point. So um, Heron said she may never date another white man again. That's true. I've been, I'm unsure if I want to take that uh, leap again. Um, it's great to blame millions of white men for that one fetishist. I don't personally blame millions of white men for the actions of my ex, I think you, um, an individual has the right to choose who they, who, who they want to and who they don't want to date. Um, and this comment to me 
um, brings up something that I witnessed quite often when I went to UW-Madison, and that's entitlement, especially entitlement to a female body, especially entitlement to a black female body. Um, I don't have to date any white man if I don't want to, blaming uh, blaming millions of white men or letting white men not have access to me is not blaming them. That's a particular choice. Um, and I don't definitely think that it's anybody's business to comment on that choice. I remember a friend of mine who went to Dartmouth at the time were both black women and I was at UW. We talked about all the white guys who would approach us because, you know, I had never seen a black girl before. You're so beautiful. I wouldn't even know how to approach a black woman because I don't know how to speak, you know, black. Um, these are comments that we actually received. Um, oh, your hair is so incredible. Your, your body is so incredible. It's really, really creepy. And, I personally don't think that uh like that uh I personally think that our experiences are valid if we decide to hey, we don't necessarily want to do this because no man is entitled to our body or our time. Um I would also say if we go to the next point, beautiful earrings beautiful earrings gifts in the shape of Africa. Creepy is given by a white man woman, cool is given by a black man woman. Um, what about an Asian man, woman who gives such a gift? It's cool because he or she's at least a person of color, right? Um, I was not sure I quite follow what this person is saying. Do you have any idea what they're saying? <laughs> uh, on, I, I have no idea. On that point, I cannot help you. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not. Uh, yeah, on that one, I cannot help you. Yeah, I, was, I remember reading it and being like, I'm really trying to understand your point. I think there are several points that are being uh, distilled into one point, and I'm not sure that this topic is useful um, or able to be distilled in such a way that uh, that I could follow what this person is saying. Um, personally, don't. I think, yeah, I can't. I can't follow what this person is saying. I'm <laughs> so sorry. Unless he's trying to say, you know, it's something exclusively about white people. Unless he's trying to say that 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 is the way he's perceiving your argument that a white person doing this is wrong. If you know a black person had done this, you wouldn't have found it offensive. It wouldn't have been a problem if it had been a so-called Asian person, any non-white person, any non-white person. They could have done the exact same thing. It wouldn't have been a problem. You wouldn't have got angry. You know, this, this piece would never have existed that it's just because he's white and he did this. Now it's a big to do unless that's what he's trying to say. I, if that is what he's trying to say, I see his point, but I think we have to go back to how racism and whiteness operates for that. Um, I think there's nothing wrong with being a person, a white person who's interested in the cultures and subject matter of people of color. Um, I don't think there's anything, there's no problems with people being interested in cultures that are not their own. I've always been interested in, um, say, a Japanese culture, primarily because I was a huge fan of anime growing up, and through anime I began to develop curiosity to how other aspects of, let's say, Japanese mythologies and faith and culture operate. But I think it, was not, it wasn't just one thing. It was several things. It was the dashiki. It was the, uh, the um, presentation of earrings in the shape of Africa. And I began to see, like, I began to think... Are you interested in me? Are you interested in what I represent? Because this is somebody who's very interested in black culture, um, in black power, and I wondered if I was just a way to to get into black culture or black power, if that makes sense. 
Got it. Got it. I appreciate that he brought I hope it. an Asian man wouldn't do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I hope an Asian man would never do that. Right on. That's like me dating an Asian man and giving him, I don't know, like, chopsticks or, <laughs> or asking him to, like, get a dragon tattoo, which it's just terrible. Right, right, right. <laughs> the, uh... I, I really, I dig that he brought up uh, the Loving case because uh, that was on my mm-hmm. mind when I heard about these age disparities. Uh, I have to credit W. Kamau Bell because uh, he's the first person that I heard that pointed this out, the age disparity. Uh, when they met the uh, white man and black female in the Loving case, uh, he was 17. She was 11 uh, when they yeah. met and they started courting later on. And he made the point of saying, mm-hmm. you know, if that had been a 17 year old black male and an 11 year old white woman, that's where this started at. There is no way people would be jumping up and down and celebrating like, yes, this is great. This is wonderful. We have like uh, that would have been grounds for a lynching, like all jokes mm-hmm. aside. Um, sure. Let's see. We had uh, folks that dialed in who had questions. Uh, I will make sure I get my question in about Octavia Butler, but call her at, uh, sure. this is Thomas in New York. Thomas in New York, did you have a question uh, for our guest? Thomas in New York, you there? Uh-oh, don't know if he had his line muted or... Hello, how are you this oh. evening um, to, to the guest? Good evening, Gus. Um, good evening to all the callers. Good evening. Good evening. How are you this evening, ma'am? I was just... Um, Looking at your your um you know your your picture on the internet and everything, and um I have a few questions for you. First question is um have you ever heard of um Dr. Francis Cress Weldon? I haven't. No. No. Okay. Um, she uses the term genetic annihilation, and my question to you is: Do you think that whites fear genetic annihilation, and that would be uh, whites knowing that if they mix with anyone else that white will no longer exist. If they mix with blacks, that baby comes out, it's not white. If they mix with an Asian, that baby comes out, it's not white. If they mix with an Indian, that baby comes out, it's not white. Do you think whites mm-hmm. fear that? I can't really comment on what white people fear or not uh, as a person who's not white. Um, I'm, do I think that um, some white people are for this? I think some white people are against this? Sure. I think that uh, racial purity is something that has been demonstrated throughout history that certain white people have been very concerned with, but I don't necessarily think that's applicable to all white people today. Okay. Um, my next question is, um, when you, you have a very natural look. Uh, when you, this, first, this white man first approached you, did you have that natural look or, um, then as well? I did. I've kept my hair in the short, but in the natural hair community, it's called a TWA, a teen, yeah, for quite some time. Um, with the other female he was dating that you saw on his Facebook page, did she also have a natural look? On the Facebook page, it was around nine years ago, and I believe that her hair was straight, but I'm, I don't quite remember, but I believe it was um, straight. Oh, okay. Um... Uh, did you have another question, Thomas? Or hello, I'm sorry, um, my my phone dropped. <laughs> Hold on. Um, that's all my questions for now. I have more, but um, I, I can't get back to them. Um, thank you very much, guys. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Uh, person that dialed in uh, five six four zero five six. 
four zero. Uh, did you have a question for Miss Gethsemane Heron? Hi, good evening, Gus, and good evening to the guests. Good evening. Good evening. Hi, uh, I'm also a native Washingtonian. Did you? You said you grew up in a mixed race uh, or uh, uh, community. Was that Adams Morgan on Mount Pleasant? Um, I grew up in Petworth, but when I say um, mixed community, I include, let's see, the art community that I was involved in. I include the high school that I attended to about walls, and it was always incredibly racially diverse. And I'm, I'm very grateful to have grown up in CDC, to have grown up in Chocolate City, to learn, to grow up in a place where black nationalism, for all its um, flaws and positives, were present so I can learn about it and analyze it. Um, but it was, wasn't just like um, my neighborhood. It was more about the world that I inhabited. Oh, wonderful. And so, the, so do you have white friends? Yeah, definitely. Okay. And uh, have you ever had white friends that have used the uh, nigger, the word nigger around you? And if so, how did you react? Never. That would end the friendship. It would? Okay, mm-hmm. and ultimately, you said with the gentleman that you dated, did you did you say that you uh, did decide that he was a racist? Um, I think that sexual fetishization is a form of racist stereotyping, um, and I think that he did that. Um, once I would say that he is a racist simply because he benefits from racism um, because he's a white man. But, I guess, but if the question is, is he prejudicial towards black people, is he harmful towards black people, then I would say no. Okay, so that would be your definition. That uh, that wouldn't be your definition of racism. Mm-hmm. Or that and, he uh, would no. be a racist. I would say that a racist is a person who benefits from racism. So by oh, that, no, no, I meant in terms of the gentleman that you dated. Yeah, I would say that he's only a racist because he is a white person who benefits from racism. But I, whether he has really um, prejudicial views towards black people, then the answer is no. Oh, okay. So, it, so would you still consider him your friend? Though he's a racist uh, because he benefits as a white person? I personally do believe I can have friendships with people who are white. Um, whether he or not, whether he and I are your friends, I think that is uh, a little bit ambiguous because our interaction was so complex over such a long period of time. So right now I would say no, but that's not because he's a white man. It's because our interaction was complex. I do have friends with, uh, I, I'm sorry, I do have friends who are white, who are white men, who are straight white men. Um, and by that logic, I do also think that they are racist, though they've never, ever given me, you know, a dashiki or earrings or things of that nature. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And just one last question is just to try to get clarification. So you, you okay. just said um, you would consider a white person or racist because they're white and they have privilege, correct? Mm-hmm. Correct, okay. but not because of their particular views or how they respect. It's actually a racist as somebody who benefits from the system of racism, and that is it. Oh, okay. And given that first def- that definition that you identify as a person being racist, they would still you would still consider them your friend? Yeah, it depends on the white person. I know too many white people who 
work so hard to be great allies to black people and work so hard to confront people in their own communities and white communities um, to uh, uh, try to end racism. My best friend is a Jewish white man, and I know the work that he does. I'm not going to hate him because he benefits from a system that he was born into that was put into place before he was here. Um, I know he's a great friend to me. Uh, and it's funny because um, that particular friend has met my ex and sees him to be just as problematic as I do. Um, but no, I know that white people could be my friends because I'm friends with him. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you. It's great to talk to a fellow Washingtonian. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. You too. Mm-hmm. Uh, caller, I guess you're on uh, the Skype line or what have you. Uh, other caller who had a hand up, did you have a question? Yes, I do. Um, good evening, everyone. Good evening. Good evening. Um, I would like to ask... Um, I know a lot of people generally, uh, a lot of people say they don't want to make generalizations um, concerning uh, racism, but um, I would say that people do, uh, we have to make generalizations and let's say science, let's say the study of psychology or sociology, in order to progress in those different studies, we have to make generalizations about behavior and stuff like that. So... With that being said, do you agree that the behavior or of white people towards black people in the history of, let's say, this country in particular, do you think that um, you dating a white man and with those circumstances, do you think that's the correct thing to do? Not just based off, like, I'm, I'm making a generalization like a, a sociologist or a psychologist would say that, white people are racist, like, do you think that it was correct uh, in that manner? I'm sorry, my my question might not make sense, but I hope it does. Let me know if I have to clarify. I guess my question to you would be correct to whom? Correct to me? Correct to other standards, to other people and how they view interracial dating? Correct to other black people? Who who is it correct to? Um, To yourself and, and, and black people in general, just based off of history, just just based off of history of what white people as a whole, because I'm generalizing just because, <clears throat> you know, back, let's say back in the 1700s or the 1800s, you would probably have to assume that all white people were racist back then. So just making a generalization, and let's say you go further to 1960 or something like that, just based off the history of what white people have done to us, to black people in general, mm-hmm. do you think that it's it would be the correct thing to do just based off of history? I'm not sure that that is a useful question to me. I think that for me, as much as we are black people, as much as we are women, we are also individuals and we can choose to love individuals. I'm a firm believer that interracial relationships can and do work out because I've seen them work out in my friend group or what have you. I personally think that so often black women are taught to caution from my perspective of having to uh, uh, experience my blackness and well, the conversations my friends and I have had. 
We are taught to choose what is right for all black people and what all black people believe or what history says is right or wrong. I personally think that you should choose what is right for you. So if this particular relationship is the relationship you need to be in and the relationship that adds to you and your life and that person is right, and I think that's not a problem. Um, I'm choosing to create relationships with people who aren't white for my own reasons, but I personally don't believe that a, uh, um, that dating a white person is, I don't, I personally don't believe that's wrong. I think that so often we're kind of taught to think about what has happened in the past and that's incredible. And that history is traumatizing and terrible. Um, sure. But I also think that so many people have the right to choose what is good and right for them as individuals. And, um, also, like, did you did you ever get a uh, like, for instance, for me, I grew grew up in a pretty much all black neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> I, have you ever had a like a gut feeling or a gut instinct to say that, hey, maybe I shouldn't be dating this white guy? Like, did you ever feel that deep down in your gut, like, hey, maybe I'm not doing something right or this doesn't feel right. Did you ever get that feeling at all? Because he was white or because he was him? Because he was white. No, never. Okay. All right. Thanks for answering my questions. Have a good day. Thank you. Have a great night. Context of white supremacy. Again, uh, if you have questions, uh, the number 641 three six four zero and the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate Uh, again uh, our guest Gethsemane Heron Uh, did I say it correctly yes you said it perfectly thank you so much outstanding trying hard uh, we'll get uh, we back to my question um, before I even get to Octavia Butler I have to at least take a moment uh, as someone who spent all this time in the D.C. area did you have uh, any reflections on uh, Marion Barry he passed not that long ago I think he was a very complex man um, I had some issues with Marion Barry because I had read some problematic things he had said about other people of color um, and to me, that isn't racism, that's prejudice, um, simply because he doesn't benefit from a system of racism. Uh, but I think he was a complex man. I think he was a sick man, and I think he was the loved man. And I, um, I wish the best for his family unless they try to cobble what they want his legacy to be. Right on, right on. Uh, Octavia Butler, um, we discussed Kindred on the program, I think it was 2011, uh, folks, mm-hmm. uh, wind back. Uh, she's written lots of, uh, different books. Uh, she's passed away now, but she wrote a ton while she was here. Uh, and mm-hmm. if you, uh, study some of her work, she talks a lot about, uh, the racism she experienced as a black female writer in the sci-fi, sci-fi genre, uh, which is mm-hmm. like super, super, super white male Super, super white male. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
Um, mm -hmm. You have written about Octavia Butler uh, near kin, a collection of words and art inspired by Octavia Estelle Butler. Uh, what is that piece about? Yep. So the piece that you're referring to, I believe, is Alice's Last Walk. And I don't want to give it away for anybody who hasn't read the book because the book is one of my favorite books. Um, and I think it's required reading. I love the work so much. Um, but for a brief synopsis that I hope doesn't spoil too much of the book for any listener that hasn't read it, there's a woman named Dana, a 1970s black woman who is um, in love and married to a white man and her greatest dream is to be a writer. And for some reason, she is called to antebellum Maryland to save her white ancestor, Rufus, whenever his life is in danger. And so it goes through several ages and years. She meets the person who's uh, her great-great-grandmother, a woman named Alice. Uh, she sees how the interaction between Rufus and Alice happens. She sees um, how this interaction needs to happen or she won't be born. And it's a very complex book. I think to answer your previous question, um, I don't remember Dana's husband's name. I think it was Kevin. I think that uh, my ex was probably closer to Kevin than he ever was to Rufus. Um, but the particular poem that you referred to um, speaks about Alice and her choice towards the end of the book to gain autonomy of her life because for so long her life hasn't, um, hasn't been hers. Um, and I don't want to give it away because I don't want to give the ending of the book away for any listener. I don't want to spoil it, but um, it's a very sad piece because Alice had a very, very rough life. Mm. Excellent reading. I would definitely say folks should check that out. I think that's... Um... Mm -hmm. One, you could probably, I think if you have teens, people ask about books that, you know, if you have, you know, teenagers and you're trying to get them to, to read constructive material, Kindred might be one. I, I have seen, I think a 16-year-old could handle Kindred. Do you think a, if you had a 16-year-old, you know, black child, male or female, do you think they could handle Kindred? Definitely. I think I read Kindred for the first time when I was 16. My mother was in a book club and read the book for her book club, and then she passed it on to me, and then I fell in love with the book. Um, I think it's incredibly well written, and I think that it's incredibly visceral. It allows, I think, uh, a modern reader, a modern black reader, to really understand how um, how slavery operated. It makes you feel slavery because, for me, so much of slavery is this terrible legacy. But it's it's, it's a story. Um, it's a period of history that affects how everything in this um, everything in the country I think operates now, especially from a physical matter. Uh, but it wasn't something that I could feel in my skin until I read Kindred. And so I personally think that it should be required reading. It's literally my, one of my top three favorite books of all time. Wow. Wow. What are the other two? The other two um, is Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte and um, The Kite Runner by Haile Hosseini. Hmm, okay, okay. There's a, do you remember the point in the book where I think Dana has come back uh, from helping Rufus do something? And I think this, mm -hmm. is, this is after the first time, like she's done it a few times. Uh, she comes mm -hmm. back and she's telling her husband, Kevin, uh, about mm -hmm. some of the stuff that happened, some of the things that Rufus said, and I guess he's older. Rufus is, uh, he's still a child at this point, but he's a little bit older, and he's mm -hmm. basically talking, I think he uses some kind of language of, of ownership, like, 
your mind, I own you, and, you know, I, I would let anybody else, you know, have you or what have you. And she's telling this to her husband, Kevin, and he's like, hmm, that sounds like something I would say. Do you remember that exchange in the book? I don't actually know. I'm going to have to uh, get the page because I just, it's been a few years since I've read it, but I just, I remember that exchange. I remember highlighting it where uh, this scene happens. I'll see if I, if I can find it really quick. I'll read it and, and see, uh, sure. see if it jogs your memory. Some of the other people that dialed in with a question, uh, retired firefighter in Florida, did you have a question uh, for our guest, uh, Miss uh, Gethsemane Heron? Uh, your line should be open. Uh, yes, sir. Greetings, everyone. Uh, I actually have two questions. The first question is, is uh, just out of curiosity. Uh, Ma'am, were the thoughts of your first name was after the biblical location where Jesus was uh, apprehended? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, my second question is, do you think the people in the known universe are under a global system of racism and white supremacy? The people as in black people or people of color? Uh, non-white people. I think that racism affects everybody, no matter their ethnic background or ethnic identification. I think that it's to the detriment of all people. I think that it becomes oppressive to people of color specifically. But I think it harms everybody. Interesting answer. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Right on. That took care of caller in Florida. Uh, caller at 9769. 9769, did you have a question? 9769? Uh, like 9769, did you have a question? Interesting. I don't know if I messed up on this one. Let's try again. Nine seven. Caller at nine seven six nine. Did you have a question? I don't know if you. Uh... Oh, hello. Yes, sir. We can hear you. Oh, okay. Green is Gus and Miss Heron. Uh, Miss Heron, um, my question is: What was your ultimate goal in putting your piece together? Sure. My ultimate goal in putting the piece together. At first, I didn't have a goal. I took a sewing Kelly class. Um, as part of my curriculum at the University of Maryland. And the goal was to just try to focus on stories about identity. And I realized that I had to reflect on what my identity was or what that meant to me as a black person and as a woman, as a woman of color who inhabits that intersection once I had this particular interaction. And so my original goal was just to work, um, work through it for myself because um, it was such a complex time in my life, and it lasted for around two years. Um, in terms of taking the Washington Post platform, um, my first goal was to expose people to my work because I consider myself to be a storyteller and a writer. Um, and my second goal was just to tell a funny story. Um, I do think that 
um, if one is going to date interracially, there has to be really hard conversations about privilege, about power. If the person is older than you, there has to be conversations about privilege and power. If the person that they is more establishing a career than you, has more money than you, those conversations are necessary or um, the relationship can be bogged down by all of this inequity. So I think my ultimate goal is to encourage people that if they, it's not to put off people from dating interracially, dating interracially, but for people to create conversation so that they don't have to go through what I did. Okay. Um, did your ex-boyfriend ever apologize for his acts of racism? Um, did he ever apologize? Let me think. Um, I would say yes and no. It was an apology but it also a justification at the same time because I don't think he really understood my point of view. So how would he uh, try to justify it, what he did? Oh, like, he's like, well, why? He would ask questions such as, you know, is it a problem? If I were a black man, would it be okay for me to, you know, give you this? Why can't I celebrate your culture? Why can't I celebrate where you come from? I think that he was genuinely trying to understand um, but at the same time, I'm not quite sure that he really did. Okay. Well, thank you for answering my question. Thank you. Context of white supremacy. Thanks for the call from a listener. If other folks have uh, questions, don't lollygag. Get your hand up if you have uh, a question uh, you would like to ask. Um, I know on this program, uh, we pretty consistently, we, we talk about the power dynamics of racism, white supremacy. Uh, I've mm-hmm. concluded that collectively, because of the system of white supremacy, uh, white people have more power than non-white mm-hmm. people as a result of that system. Do you think that's accurate? I do. Okay. Um, just using logic on that basis, um, I apply the same logic that people use. They, uh, I think Harvard, they just instituted uh, new rules within the last I think this calendar year, they instituted new rules saying that they just wanted it formally in writing that faculty members, uh, professors cannot be engaged in any sort of uh, sexual activity with students. Uh, that this is incorrect. There's an unequal power uh, dynamic between the faculty and students, and we just don't want to have anything sexual there. Um, that logic, it seems to get applied across the board, like when people frown on or have rules against uh, employers having sexual intercourse with their employees uh, or teachers mm-hmm. and students, guards, inmates. They kind of have that same rule that there's an unequal power dynamic that we kind of dissuade sexual relationships. That's the same way that mm-hmm. I view uh, sexual relationships between white people and non-white people, that that white person is always in a more powerful position uh, so they can exploit that non-white person in this arrangement. Uh, does that seem logical? No, I would say that as a jump in logic, actually. I think that we're talking about specific institutions, i.e. the workplace and, let's say, academia, um, um, that I don't believe is applicable to this particular thing. Do I think there's um, inequ- inequity in power? Oh, excuse me, sorry. Um, there's just somebody locked out of my apartment. I think it's oh. Oh, um Give me one second. Mm, helping a neighbor, right on, right on. Let me get out of the way. Take a short little break. Need to run to the restroom. Um, but yeah, no, I don't necessarily see a job or 
school, um, whether it's a student-teacher dynamic or there's an employee-employee dynamic, as student alliance are going applicable to individuals who um, who are from different ethnicities. I think that's a very problematic jump in logic. Oh, okay. I didn't say two people from different ethnicities. I said a white person. Or a white person. You know, a system of white supremacy. Yeah, I still think that's a jump in logic. Okay. Would, would there, even if we're not at a school or a prison or a workplace environment, even if we're not there, would the power, the system of racism, white supremacy, would that still be in operation? You meeting, you individually meeting with this other individual who is a white person? I'm sorry, do you mind saying the question again? Yes, ma'am. I said, would the power, the structure, the system of white supremacy, is that no longer present once it's just two individuals who are meeting and they're not at a school or prison or workplace or what have you? Is that structure, is that system no longer present for those two individuals that are meeting and doing their thing? No, I think that the system of racism is present, but I also think the system of racism is present everywhere. So I think that would make for the individuals under particular relationship, they're just going to have to work that out, whatever that means to them, whether that is him saying something very problematic one day, whether it be his family members, I'm assuming it's a white man talking about what I experienced, um, having really uh, destructive views towards black people, whether it be barring somebody from coming to a restaurant, from coming into um, a place of business, I think those things can happen. I don't think racism automatically existing because a white person and a black person um, decide to date one another. I do, however, think that when it comes to interpersonal relationships, that can be um, that can be worked on and talked about how their interaction and their relationship can function. But do I think that racism? stop existing because a black person and a white person decide to date? No, I don't. Hmm. Right on, right on. You said uh, earlier that you knew quite a few uh, white people who, I guess they were working hard. I think you said that you knew a Jewish white person. He was working really hard to work against racism. Like, what, what exactly is he doing that's working hard against racism? So that particular person is my best friend, and I would consider him to be an ally. He's constantly, let's say, working all uh, within his own family and their own problematic views that challenging them, like, why do you think this exists? Why do you think this happens? Or whether it be volunteering in prison, helping people, um, or helping young people, especially young people of color, use whatever they're feeling to something constructive because he's a writer, I'm a writer, um, helping young men get out their feelings um, through writing. Um, it's incredibly useful. And I think there's a lot of people, let's say, um, white activists, there's a particular activist, I can't remember his name right now, who, and it's not John Stewart, it's someone else, uh, I can't remember his name, who constantly points out to other white people, okay, other white people, um, how problematic racism is and how it can operate a day-to-day life. I forget his name, but he talks about... Um, something as simple as him as a young white man in New Orleans locking himself out of it, locking himself out of his car um, as a 20-something-year-old man and having a white police officer help him break into his own car. But a black man would never have that citizen of the doubt from a white police officer and trying to talk about the lack of logic and the inherent inequity through that. So, oh, man, I can't forget his name, but I would say that my friend is very much like that. 
particular man. It's going to drive me crazy to remember his name. Hmm. That is, that is fascinating. I get, I get when I hear that, uh, though, the thing that, that comes back to me is that seems to be working off of this premise that white people are ignorant or not aware of racism and that if they get mm-hmm. correct information about this problem, they will move to do better and to stop practicing racism. And I just, I've seen absolutely no evidence that that's true. I think that entire mm-hmm. premise promotes, uh, it strengthens the practice of racism because it gives a flawed analysis of white people's, uh, in my view, thorough, comprehensive, expert understanding of racism, white supremacy. They don't need, uh, they don't need remedial tips. Um, I think it depends on the white person. I think living in Wisconsin, where there were a lot of rural white people who had never come into contact with people that they did not know. They weren't aware because uh, for them, even though racism, I think, can create all white communities because of segregation, because of redlining, it was never um, presented to them as such. For them, it was just normal. Um, so I think it depends. I think there are plenty of white people who are aware of racism and know how it operates. There are plenty of people who are don't and um, need help finding that. I think there are plenty of people, white people, who support racism. I think there are plenty of white people who are very much against it. So I think it depends on um, the worker trying to end racism. Right on. Uh, we had two other people that called in. I would just encourage uh, listeners, very important, one of Dr. Welsing's tenants there are not plenty of white people on the planet. Uh, they are less than 10% of the population. That's very important when we start thinking about racism, in my opinion. Uh, and also, sure. very important, I think, keeping in mind, uh, I think our opinion on how informed or uninformed white people are would shift dramatically if we knew what white people talked about when other white people are not around. The person that called in, 8179-8179, did you have a question for Ms. Gethsemane? Heron, your line should be open. Uh, may I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, good evening. First, I apologize for putting my hand up so late, but um, mm-hmm. my question was sparked based off of this uh, part of the dialogue that I just heard. And I'm not sure, sure if you answered this question or if this was asked, but um, I'd like to ask, most of Gus's guests this question. Who do you think is most confused about um, racism and how it works, um, white people or non-white people? I'm not sure. I really don't know. I don't know if it would be an issue of most confused in comparison to what, I don't know if confusion can operate in a superlative manner. I think that a lot of people are incredibly confused. I don't, I don't know if that is a question that does enough work for me. Well, just based off of your experience with, um, I guess, white people, um, do, you mm-hmm. just, you, do you feel that they are confused or just black people when you talk to them, especially based off of your experience and what you've been sharing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, do you, who do you think, you know, just exhibits the most confusion? I don't think it's a matter of, black white people being more confused about how racism works or black people being more confused or people of color, because I think it is important to know um, that racism is something that affects so many people of color and not necessarily just black people. Um, I think that if we focus on a black white narrative, it eliminates the narratives of so many other people of color. And that's incredibly necessary. I think to have a holistic view on it. Um, But I don't, I wouldn't say that, 
my white friends are more confused than my black friends or my other people of color friends at all. I think that we're all very confused. Um, well, that my, nah, I wouldn't say that. Some people have very clear ideas of what they believe racism to be. Some people don't, but I don't necessarily believe that my white friends, my Latina Dodd friends, my Asian American friends are more or less confused than anybody else. Okay. Um, are you familiar with um, Tim Weiss? The name sounds familiar. Okay. I was just wondering if you were. Um, I was going to ask a question about him, if you were familiar. But that's all of my questions. Thanks, Gus. And, again, I apologize to put my uh, hand up so late. Thanks. Thank you so much. For sure. Uh, 8179, have you been able to read any of uh, Five Days at Memorial? I have. I've been um, off and on. My week has been busy, but I will be chiming in uh, this week because I've been able to play a little bit of catch-up, but very interesting, and I knew it would uh, disturb me a little bit, so I'm working through it. <laughs> right on, right on. Good to know. Um, the uh, person that called in, 8320, 8320, did you have a uh, question you wanted to get in, 8320? Uh, yes, I did. Thanks, Gus, for taking the call. Greetings to you and greetings to the guests. Greetings. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, and you? Uh, I'm actually calling from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and uh, I just had one question. Um, it's areas in Milwaukee um, where there are, uh, like, no black people allowed at all, um, mm -hmm. predominantly all white areas. Um, and my question is, um, how, in your opinion, how did those uh, areas become all white? In my opinion, from my understanding, all white areas are definitely a result of racism and segregation and redlining, um, particular unfair um, and just housing policies that literally barred people from um, purchasing um, residencies in a particular area. I know that Milwaukee, I've gone to it quite a few times, especially when I was a student at UW Madison. Milwaukee is, if not the most, one of the most segregated cities, according to a friend, the third most segregated city um, in the country. That, from how I understand it, the south side is very Latino, um, the west side is very white, and I don't know about the north or east side. I think it's a mixture between black and long people. Uh, but I do believe that that particular segregation is a very purposeful thing that didn't just uh, come to be sporadically throughout time. I think that was very much a, a choice um, from policies and unfair housing process, unfair housing practices. Okay. Um, and with that being said, it seems um, you kind of, you know, recognize the play at hand so my next question would be, <clears throat> with that being said, how can white people be confused about racism? How so? I'm sorry? How so? Could you elaborate with your question for me, please? Uh, well, I heard you say that uh, you think that black people and white people are, you know, both confused about racism. And I just wanted to give a little pushback on that. I don't think that white people are confused about racism at all. Okay. Do you mind telling me why? I'm sorry? Do you mind telling me why you don't feel that way? Uh, because they don't get in trouble if they're not racist. 
I'm sorry, could you uh, say it again? Do you mind um, being as specific as possible, sir? Um, but as far as defining trouble? Oh, um, no, standing upon your point. Uh, I mean, I think uh, it's pretty, I can't really, um, I think it's pretty, pretty clear. Um, if you're not mistreating people of color, uh, you will get in trouble, and that varies uh, the most significant thing being death. So um, if you're not mistreating people of color, you will get in trouble? Yes. How so? If you're white. How so? Um, I think I just kind of uh, explained that. Uh, thanks for taking the call, Gus, and thank you for being on the program. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great night. Mm -hmm. You too. Uh, the person at uh, 8536, last four digits, 8536, did you have a question? Oh, yes, hello. Good good evening, Ms. Aaron. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers. Uh, do you believe in watching shows like Scandal, the Flash, Sleepy Hollow, and other programs that show quote-unquote interracial love. Do you believe this is done as a way to devalue love between black couples? Well, I haven't seen Sleepy Hollow or The Flash, and I think I've seen about 20 minutes of Scandal. It's a show I'm, I'm really interested in and want to watch, but I haven't really had the time. But I personally don't believe that it's a... I personally believe that it's a false binary. I think showing interracial relationships doesn't devalue um, black love or the necessity of black depiction of relationships. I think that's like saying that the presence of gay people somehow devalues um, the pictures of relationships between heterosexual people, I think it's the false binary. Mm. Okay. All right. Uh, and, Though I do and, believe that uh, it's really necessary for black love to be depicted on television. I think that's why I'm really happy that shows like being Mary Jane or a blackish exist. Yes. But it is interesting. Uh, you, you are aware that on Blackish, here's a person who marries a quote unquote biracial woman, but makes fun mm -hmm. of her for being biracial, mm -hmm. and being Mary Jane. There's a constant issue with with her not having a stable relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, those, those are just things I wanted to point out. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, all right. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Have a great night. A uh, person that dialed in, 9451. 9451, did you have a question for our guest? Mm -hmm. Uh background noise on over there. 9451, is that you? Did you have a question? Uh, well, not... me, uh, hey, Gus, it's Thomas from New York. Can I be heard? Oh, yes, sir. We can hear you. Great, great, great. Oh, I'm sorry. I had a technical difficulty 
uh, I, I lost power with all my other devices where I had my questions written. Uh, I, my question is, um, has any of her white friends ever came up to her and told her that another white person was practicing racism behind, behind her back? Wait, could you say that again, sir? I can't really hear you. Speak up, speak up. I'm sorry. Volume's going down. Hold on, let me change. Um... Is this better now? That's better. Yeah, much better. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, my question for you was, has any of your, your white friends ever come up to you and told you that another white person was maybe talking behind her back in a way that was racial? Um, I don't believe so. No, I'm going to do my list of uh, white people friends, and no, I haven't had that interaction. Have any of them ever warned you about another white person being a racist? No, they haven't. Okay, um, interesting. In all these years, um, and um, my last question for you is, um, did any um, white man that you have a relationship with ever mm-hmm. try to make you role play in a way that was like, um, you know, kind of racist? <laughs> never. Oh, my gosh, no. You never made you, like, dress up like a slave or nothing like that? Never. I don't understand. I don't know what you think goes on in a... Well, I'm, I'm curious, you know, I, I'm, I'm very curious because I, as a black man, like if I was dating a female and she was to tell me she was dating a white man before, I wouldn't date her anymore. That's just my, like to me, she's tainted. <laughs> her views appear probably pretty much like yours are, and I probably wouldn't want to deal with that. So that's why I was asking, like, what, what happens inside of that relationship that changes a black person to have their views so tainted, like, I find you to be very defensive of white people, um, you know, it, it, it kind of like in denial that this system really exists, even though you're saying it does. So I was just kind of curious, like, um, um, if you had any insight, that would be perfect. Well, I definitely can't speak for all black people who decide to uh, date a particular white person, but I don't necessarily think that because my views differ from yours. That means that they're tainted. I think they just differ. Um, Two, I'm very much aware that white privilege and racism is a very problematic, destructive, damaging system to the lives of black people. Um, So I don't necessarily agree with your point that I'm ignorant or in denial of that. Do I defend all white people? No, I think there are some really terrible white people out there in this world. Um, I think me defending necessarily my friend's um, or ex-partners are necessarily right. And no, I've never had an interaction where a white man asked me to role-play as a slave. Okay, well, I'm, I'm done with the questions. Thank you very much. Thank you. I have seen, uh, unfortunately, quite a few of those. I know people have written books about some of their different experiences, and uh, not just black people, uh, non-white people in total uh, have written, and that has come up uh, quite a few times, strange requests and sexual things and the whole nine. I've seen quite a bit of that. Uh, the person that dialed in uh, last four digits, five, two, three, four, five, two, three, four. Did you have a question? Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Greetings to you, Gus, and um, greetings to Ms. Kyla Karen. Thank you very much for um, coming on the show today. I did have a few questions. Um, the first one, 
I wanted to ask was, what would you say white people have done collectively to replace white supremacy with justice? And if, if in your opinion, they have done something, what, what, what would you say, or how, how would you say it's changed the, the way that uh, the country is run and how we relate to each other as far as um, the different races? White people as a collective? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I could comment on what white people as a collective have done. I know what individuals have done. I know people like um, Anne Braden or um, Violet Luzo, and I'm so sorry if I mispronounced her name, have done. Um, but I wouldn't know, I don't know if I know enough of what white people have done as a collective. All right, so for the individuals that you have named, can you mm-hmm. say that they've made a significant dent in race relations based on the work that they've done? Has anything changed as far as the systematic issues that we deal with on a daily basis, in your opinion? I think my question to you would be, what do you mean by significant dent? Did they eradicate racism or...? Right. I mean, like, have they made any, right, have they made any sort of uh, significant changes in how we relate to each other as collective groups as far as their individual work, would you say? I think that in the case of, let's say, Ann Braden, who, for those who don't know, was an anti-racist activist, um, I believe in Kentucky, who she and her husband were both newspaper reporters, um, and they decided to help a black couple, a GI, who had come from come from war, he and his wife buy a neighbor, uh, buy a house in their neighborhood, which was racially segregated at the time. And I think that those small steps are something as huge that could harm their families, harm the black families that they tried to help. Um, I think that is a, a huge step. And Braden talks about coming from a very racist, um, um, very prejudiced, um, believing in white supremacy uh, environment in Alabama, and somebody as kind and sweet as her father, Junior, believing that black people were inferior to white people, which I believe is completely as a fallacy. Of course, black people are not um, inferior to white people. I think that her awakening and her dedicating her life to anti-racist work, um, even though she's passed on, she's been dead for about 12 years. Um, I believe that that is a significant change, that if generations can change, it gets better. Do I think that racism is close to being over? No. I think that if you look at school systems, if you look at the school-to-prison pipeline, it's clear that racism is very much alive um, and that the presence of an Oprah or Barack Obama hasn't eradicated racism. But I do believe that if that things can get better, but I do think they're really problematic right now. I'm not sure if there's, I don't know if significant debt would be the presence of the Voting Rights Act or that black people can vote now, even though the Voting Rights Act, as it was written, is no longer existing. Um, the fact that um, there is a black president, I think that there are steps, but I don't think that those steps are enough. Okay, and um, thank you. And um, also, have you ever asked or have any of your white friends ever told you what they discuss when there are no non-white people around? Um, I've never asked, but that's a good question. I think that I'll have to ask. Okay. And um, um, also, do you, would you say that based on the, uh, the situation in America, as far as uh, racially speaking, um, would you say that there is a war being waged against black people at this time in history? Oh, yeah, definitely. 
I think there's too much left there for there not to be some sort of war. Okay. The reason I ask is because um, I'll take the, I, I have another question, but I just want to kind of lead into it. I'll take the Iraq war, for example. When America went okay. into Iraq um, to supposedly help liberate them, uh, when they went into that country, they did not go and go house to house and ask who was a good Iraqi and who was a bad one. They shot mm-hmm. everybody that they saw True. because it was a war. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that's what's happening to us. Um, mm-hmm. Do you believe that we should judge white people individually when they have and continue to judge black people collectively, which is why these incidents that you just brought up to and um, some of the most recent racial incidents have taken place? Would you say it's constructive for us to judge them individually when we continue to get judged collectively, which is causing these incidents with our people? I can only speak for myself. I don't think it's necessarily fair for me to speak of what all black people should do and what white people do. I have personally made a decision to not judge individual white people but um, for the racism or prejudices that they have towards black people. I simply have decided to pray for them um, and if they are open to having um, conversations with me, um, individual white people that I know, I'm opening. I'm open to listening for them, depending on who it is. It's not something that I do for everybody because it's incredibly exhausting work. Um, white guilt is not necessarily something that I find to be useful. Um, as it's to me, it it. Uh, it uh, focuses on what white people have gone through, and I think that it should be focused on what people of color have gone through. So I personally choose not to judge, um, but rather say, hey, this action is problematic uh, because of this, but I'm not going to judge who you are as a person as, um, for making this action, if that makes sense. Okay. I'd like to thank you very much for answering my questions. Thanks for taking my call, Gus. Um, I'll meet my line there. Thank you. And have a great evening. You too. Right on, right on. Looking at the switchboard, uh, I think it might have nabbed everybody who had a question. If anybody, if you had uh, a question uh, that you wanted to make sure you got in, if something came up, other listeners asking me, what have you, uh, the number again, 641-715-3640. And the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six uh if you have a question don't lollygag get your hand up uh the next minute or so if you have a question that you uh think you want to get in um you also had a poem uh that i caught uh where you were talking about your uh experience i guess and and some of throughout your academic career racism comes up in some of your classes where you all are talking about these issues uh, and some of your white students, how they handle uh, these conversations and even some of the white women when they begin crying with the difficulty of it all. What exactly uh, were Mm -hmm. you trying to, uh, what were you trying to convey in this piece? Oh, that role was written in undergrad. Um, I think for my experience in that particular class, I think a lot of people, would talk about racism. Um, I was probably the only black person in the class. A lot of the white people were talking about racism. They would talk about how it hurt them and how it affected them and not necessarily how it affected other pe- uh, people of color. They made it about them. They centered themselves in that narrative, which was incredibly problematic. Um, 
I'm trying to remember that piece. Yeah, it One was privilege. pretty. Yeah, it was uh, pretty frustrating to be in a room of people who benefited from white privilege um, and not necessarily and be the only person of color in that room um, who has never benefited from white privilege and hearing people complain about their privilege. That was pretty frustrating as an undergrad and very frustrating to, um, uh, pretty frustrating to, with that particular prospector who did very little to stop it. Um, but do I think those women are bad women? No, I think that I wrote that maybe two or three years ago. Um, and uh, I think those women just um, struggled with what their world view being challenged or shattered. Mm. One of the uh, the lines towards the end of the piece, uh, you write that a uh, mm-hmm. girl who never has to walk past an apartment where a dark doll was lynched mm-hmm. every day. Uh, and this was mm-hmm. referencing uh, a real life event. What was this connected to? Yeah. So when I was at the University of Wisconsin, um, there was an apartment building not far from my own apartment building where some young men um, got drunk and had a party and they took a black Spider-Man doll. I don't know if anybody is familiar with, uh, what's that thought? Familiar with, um, the Spider-Man that felt that there was a black Spider-Man suit by the name of Venom. That's a go Spider-Man suit. Anyway, it's not important. They took a Venom doll that was a black doll and took a noose and put it around its neck and put it outside, um, and put it outside for the, campus community to see though technically it was right off campus and it was terrible seeing a black doll literally having a noose around its neck and it was frightening and it was traumatizing the, the that violent imagery it's something that i remember to this day mm. total system of terrorism total saying we were mm-hmm. just talking about that yesterday with mr washington where they on his job he's in california and they uh one of his white co-workers put a noose uh on another black employee's belongings and this is supposed to be funny mm-hmm. and you know we're all a family just take a joke what's wrong with you why are you being, why are you being and it's so never scared? funny exactly that is never funny exactly i i completely agree uh i'm looking at the switchboard i assume folks are satisfied who got their question make sure i didn't miss anybody who you know had a hand up or if you've been listening if you didn't get a chance to get a hand up you had a question that you wanted uh to get in our guest uh miss gethsemane heron mm-hmm. please get your mm-hmm. hand up don't wait till the last minute uh thoroughly enjoyed having you on the program did you did you get a sense just from the piece uh when it was published at the washington post did you get a sense for how people were responding either through comments or contacting you directly Sure, I got quite a few likes and shares, and I had kind of a lot of my black female friends contact me and say, you know, thank you for articulating this because it's something that I've experienced, whether it be with my friends or whether it be with my particular partners. I think it was something that resonated with people. There were um, some people who thought it was childish and it was race-based, that I came off as really angry. And when I look back at the piece, I don't really seem angry to me, I think. If anything, I seem a little sad or frustrated, but never angry. But I think that black woman often has anger right on them, even when it's not there uh, or it's not what they're feeling. Um, so for the most part, the reception that I've seen has been very positive. Well, that is fascinating. I didn't, I've watched it, uh, both versions of it. I've seen several times now, and uh, mm-hmm. I never thought angry uh, didn't. 
I didn't I didn't get a sense that there was any venom uh, behind all of nope. the frustration. There. I definitely have no venom venom towards him or towards the situation. I think that if you look at the story district performance, I see it as a comedy because it's so ludicrous and so absurd. I had to laugh at it so I wouldn't cry about it. Um, but it also made me, you know, create really um, difficult questions for me about what does it mean to be black? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to date somebody with all this privilege? Um, and is this something that I want to do in the future? And the answer is I'm not sure. Right on. Right on. It has been a hoot having you on the program. Thoroughly enjoyed the exchange. I uh, hope we didn't pluck your nerves, but definitely, uh, again, just appreciate you being willing to invest a bit of your Tuesday evening. And uh, we'll definitely be on the lookout if it's if you have more content at the Washington Post or if it's on your site. Is there a place that you would recommend folks if they want to see more of your work uh, that they can go to? So I'm actually building my website now because I didn't like some previous video, but it's um Social media is probably be the best way. Twitter, I'm um, at the Olive's Mouth, and same thing with Instagram. I can just find me on Facebook at Gethsemane Heron. Outstanding. Uh, we have the Washington Post uh, piece linked in the description, so you can just click. should be uh, right where uh, the piece is titled, so you can click it. It'll take you there. You can uh, see the piece, and we'll go. We'll put her uh, Twitter information as well if folks want to follow, and that way you can keep up to date with everything that she's involved with. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, again, we'll hope to uh, speak with you in the future and keep an eye on all of your great work, particularly if you're continuing to uh, try to reveal truth about racism, white supremacy. All right. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. For sure. You too. Bye. Take care. Good evening. Context of white supremacy. Uh, again, uh, Miss Gethsemane Heron. Fascinating exchange. Fascinating. Uh, we will take a quick commercial break, and uh, then, if folks, if they uh, have comments uh, that they would like to get in, um, not, you know, victim of racism. Everybody's a victim of racism. We didn't have any uh, racists directly participating in the program, to my knowledge, uh, this evening. So, uh, you know, if you don't agree, that's fine. Uh, but if folks have any comments they want to get in, a uh, quick commercial break, and then I uh, had one other uh I guess one other comment I wanted to make sure I got in also, but we'll take uh, a quick break and then we'll be right back and we should have time if folks have anything they want to get in as well. Context of white supremacy. Everyone. Welcome. This is Justice with the Cows Radio program. If you want to learn about, understand, and counter racism, white supremacy, be sure not to miss a Cows episode. We keep them jammed, packed with constructive information to sharpen your use of words to help eliminate the system of racism, white supremacy, ASAP. Also, to be able to invest in my counter racist efforts, co hosting the Cows Radio program, Please visit my blog, Just Do Justice Today. Blogspot.com. Here's just saying, just buckets and buckets of words. Context of white supremacy. Uh, summer is wrapping up, finishing out the fundraiser. Summer 2015. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism. Hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com 
racism-notes.blogspot.com. Listener-supported, counter-racist radio. PayPal button is in the top right corner. Uh, For folks who are not into PayPal, drop me an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. Uh, Huge thanks to all the folks who have invested or nabbed a book or anything uh, to contribute to the program being on. Uh, I hope it has been and continues to be worthy of your time and energy and just appreciate everyone who has invested Uh, with that. also, I want to make sure I give out second commendation to Cal's listeners. Uh, thanks to all the folks uh, for being uh, courteous, respectful uh, of the guests. I was glad we didn't get uh, anybody, I think for the most part, didn't call in and tell us she was crazy and, and that sort of thing. Uh, we can be patient and I think, again, more than anything, uh, remembering uh, just the logic dictates. If there is a system of racism, white supremacy, black people are victims uh regardless if you don't agree or whatever the stance they've taken they're victims um you know you don't have to agree and would probably be best to expect and anticipate that people are likely not going to agree with your view whatever it is on racism white supremacy and what we should be doing about this problem but kudos to folks for uh, being courteous get your question right on that's the way to do it uh with other victims on the program uh folks that are with us, uh, if folks had any commentary, uh, I will say many times throughout the broadcast, I was reminded uh, of the piece that I wrote in many years now, uh, interracial relationships are sad, uh, and that's sad, S-A-D-D, it is an acronym, uh, that acronym S, uh, it stands for space, talking about racism, white supremacy in a manner that provides space for white people that are not racist, uh, or even if they are racist, they can be redeemed. If they are racist, we can, you know, coach them up and get them enough literature and all that, and they will stop being racist. Uh, the A in sad, abstract, meaning talking about racism, white supremacy in a way uh, that makes it nebulous. It's out there. Uh, it does exist, but we're not being specific and indicting the white women, white men, white children uh, who are functioning and uphold that system of racism on a day-to-day basis. Uh, We talk about racism in a manner that does not indict white people specifically. Uh, The first DN said divided loyalties uh, in a system of racism, white supremacy, where you have non-white people uh, who are empathizing, sympathizing with racists or suspected racists, white people sympathizing with them and kind of cutting them some slack. Uh, divided loyalties, and then the last D is defending white people. I think that speaks for itself. Uh, but that is interracial relationships are sad, and that's been an observation that I've noted uh, down through the years. That post, uh, it's been years now. <laughs> it's been up for a long time, but that came to mind uh, frequently uh, during the program uh, for today. Um, any folks that are dialed in, that had a hand up, if you all had anything, not, not really even looking for a... Uh, bashing of the victim or if you don't agree or any of that I'm not looking for that she's uh, got vgq just like the rest of us none of us have solved this problem uh, but if you had a quick uh, comment you wanted to get in line should be open yes uh you're a little i can hear you but you're a little low if you could speak up please you know every time i call in i pretty much i get a little nervous so i can't really articulate myself like i want to but it was just you really need to look at racism like white supremacy scientifically it's like you know when i was talking about generalizations it's like 
in science, when you study something, like let's say you're studying animal behavior or any type of weather or anything, is you generalize just to like kind of advance the science of whatever you're studying. Like, oh, this animal, you know, um, travels to this country at this time, you know. And then we're, a lot of times what we do is just one of oh, this individual here instead of making that generalization to, you know, scientifically, you know, try to counter racism. We want to always, oh, I'm going to judge this individual white person here, and this individual white person here. And no, 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 this individual white person here. No, we got to study them as a, pretty much as a group, because we don't do that, then we're not going to get anywhere. So that's all I was kind of trying to say to her, but, you know, she was, she was dodging a few questions or whatever. But that's all I had. I forgot to uh, mention, I just thought of Ann Braden. <clears throat> she mentioned her. She was talking about white people that have uh, allegedly worked against racism. Uh, and we had her biography, uh, Catherine Fossey, F-O-S-I. She was on the program earlier this year. Uh, she's a white woman suspected racist as well. Uh, she was on the program this past spring, and uh, we read her book. She wrote massive biography on Ann Braden. Uh, and she did. She helped a black couple get a house in Kentucky in a white area of town. I think they were the first black people to uh, attempt to live in a house in that part of town. And white people uh, harassed them, broke windows, threatened, just totally terrorized them. They eventually bombed uh, the residents. I don't think the uh, black family, I don't think they were even able to stay there uh, because of the, the harassment and the bombing and everything. I think they eventually had to to give all that up. But uh, I was just thinking, but the reason I was thinking of her was because uh, when I had Dr. Fossey on the program, I asked her if she thought it was an act of racism uh, Ann Braden requesting that Dr. King intervene on behalf of her and her husband uh, to try to help them. Uh, her husband, he got arrested for some of their activities to try to help their husband, uh, the street that they were in. And I said, you all are white. I don't care what your problems are. You're white in a system of white supremacy. You going to Dr. King or any black person, any non-white person victim of white supremacy and asking them to come and, and help you out, particularly Dr. King, who is already under gargantuan pressure being spied on uh, by the federal government and harassed with their Cointel Pro uh, operations and God knows what else under the constant threat of death to come in and ask him to intervene and help you white people out that's just going to further endanger him. I said, that's an act of racism. Uh, and she agreed with the logic uh, when she was on the program. We talked about it, but I just thought of her uh, today. I don't, I don't think of her as a, as a white person that was not a racist. I think of her as just another white person who alleges to have done something. She has not solved the problem, and she did some things that I think were acts of racism. So, par for the course. <laughs> but uh, I was just thinking of her today, Ann Brayton. Uh, anybody else have a comment they want to get in? Yes, sir. Uh, as you mentioned, victims guaranteed qualifications. Uh, additionally, uh, to that, um, I, 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 uh, thought the program was, uh, constructive, uh, mainly because the, uh, the, uh, guests who came on, uh, just like, uh, everybody else, uh, we all start from somewhere and having an understanding of the system of racism, white supremacy, and, uh, uh, she did uh, state that uh, 
uh, that uh, we're under a global system of racist white supremacy, and that's a start. Uh, uh, none of us, including the person that you're listening to, is perfect on on the subject as far as knowing uh, exactly uh, what it is at all times and how it works, because if it did, I, I would have the answer to it, and I know I don't have the answer to it as of yet. Uh, uh, did I think she was uh, somewhat defensive of, of white people? Perhaps yes, but but uh, as I mentioned before, that doesn't that doesn't necessarily perturbs me or anything. Uh, it's a start. Hopefully, uh, uh, she uh, uh, has uh, uh, a uh, uh, another understanding of it, a much more greater understanding, and work towards it. I think she said that she. Uh, is in a position where she is working towards developing a greater understanding of it, and uh, uh, I just hope that that is really is something that she's sincere about and she go goes towards it. Uh, because eventually, if whatever we're talking about is the truth, then eventually, if you're sincere about it, you'll you'll get there. I think that person will get there, and I, and uh, so that's my thoughts on on uh, the program today. Thank you, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, that's, I think this um, this program was really, really good. Um, I, you can really tell her confusion um, because when I asked if uh, there was a war being waged on black people, she did agree with it. But I believe um, she has what uh, uh, Dr. Kwabena uh, Shanti calls humanitarian disease. It's almost like we try so hard to think of white people as if they're like us or like this in some way close to a normal, so-called normal human being that we overlook the things that are like right in front of us. So I think she's well on her way. Hopefully um, this is the beginning of uh, a deeper and richer understanding of the system of white supremacy. I hope she does ask her white friends what they discuss when there are no white, no non-white people around. Um, and hopefully she can get some honest answers on that. And I hope she can dig in the archives. I think she'll learn quite a bit. But I think the show is really, really good. And it just exemplifies the, the deep-rooted level of confusion um, and, and actually, like, self-denial that we go through um, in trying to uh, understand the system the best way we can. Thank you very much. Uh, she did say she was still learning, which I super appreciate, and uh, I can echo uh, as someone who is also still learning. Uh, but I just I can remember, um, and and just kudos uh, for Miss Heron uh, coming on the program uh, and sharing. I think that's uh, shouldn't be lost <laughs> to go out and be talking with strangers uh, about previous experiences, some of them uh, painful uh, that you had some strong emotional ties to. But uh, I know. Some of the other programs uh, that we've done, I think Herndon Davis, he was on the program at the beginning of beginning of 2014 uh, and other examples, even me personally, uh, when I was more confused and I had, quote unquote, white friends, they can make it very difficult. And I'm speaking from personal experience. They can make it very difficult to uh, be honest uh, and even to be honest with yourself at times about racism. And I'm speaking for myself here. Um, and that I remember that distinctly and saying, man, now that this one is gone, 
there will be no more white friends <laughs> because I just feel like that causes a major disruption because uh, you have someone now you're concerned if the position that you take on racism is it going to how is it going to impact that person is it going to hurt their feelings is it going to disrupt that friendship like all of that comes into play and I've heard that consistently and I, I can only restate I'm speaking from personal experience not uh, judgment on anybody else that's been pretty consistent in terms of, of what I felt and what I've heard from other people and how it can just make it very difficult to be honest about the problem white people anybody else have commentary yes an excellent show um I think it'll be best for the people who um, probably don't have a good understanding to listen to that show because um, I think it kind of stood out pretty clear. Um, and what you just said, you wrote about it before and you kind of spelled it out. It was like an acronym that was, man, perfect. Pinpoint on the head. Um, she was a victim too, of course, and um, unfortunately being sexually sued and, um, man, it's hard to come back from that. You know, it's real difficult. Um, She'll probably forever be in a state of confusion, regardless of who she's with, regardless of what race they are. And, um, man, I just, in a way, you know, I kind of always say, man, I I can't wait for the event to happen that wakes all the black people up and they just see it, but then that'll probably be a sad day. Black history, so I'll mute my line on that one. It's the show, Gus, and um, um, I look forward to. I know you're probably going to tell us some more from that book that you've been reading. I look forward to hearing about that. Thank you. Right on. I uh, I don't know if you mean five days at Memorial. Um, <laughs> that is uh, all done. I finished that on Sunday, so I've moved on to other books. Um, however, uh, that was our auxiliary book read. Uh, I did read it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it took lots and lots of highlights. And so other people, I think you heard one of our callers, she's still reading it. I think some of the other folks are still uh, reading it. So as they continue to read and, and comment, I'll be uh, engaged. So if any of them, you know, as they get to the finish line, uh, have a comment or so, definitely. Um, it is a fact. Really, if anything, I would just uh, encourage folks the importance uh, of reading, writing, it is vitally important in terms of just refining our understanding, the way we think about racism, white supremacy, getting better with our use of words, which is extremely important. Uh, definitions. Uh, it's, it's just crucial. Just so much uh, sticks out, just getting better. And I can tell you as someone I did not grow up reading, I did not like reading. I was someone I never went to the library. I didn't grow up with tons of books. That was not my hobby or thing to do. I did not, you know, become interested in reading until way, 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 way uh, later on. And really it was when I started finding that there were a lot of books that had constructive information, not just about black people, but about racism, about all kinds of things. Uh, but especially about why black people were in a such, uh, such a difficult position. There were a lot of books uh, that could explain that. Um, in that end, uh, I was hoping to get people to contribute and, and have dialogue for the book that I just read, Five Days at Memorial, which I'm still open. The form it's online. I'm still open to do and um, <laughs> would be happy to engage. Uh, I, the new book I started, I'm still on my Katrina binge. The new book uh, that I started is Douglas Brinkley's The Great Deluge. Uh, this is also a big book. If folks want to read, it's it's just about the first five days that Katrina hit and evaluating the local response. What was Governor Blanco doing? President Bush just really intensely focused on those first five days 
and what was happening, how were people responding and, and really getting a lot of uh, detailed information about all that. It's also written by a white person. This is also a big book. I think it's, I don't know, 1400 pages, uh, but I'm trying to read as much material as I can as we go through Katrina after the flood so that I can uh, compare so that I will be more informed uh, as we go through. I can compare and again, just to emphasize so many black people died in this event that I think we should have some uh, significant reverence for something that was not ancient history that a lot of us saw happen, that we should take that seriously. If we, you know, say we have some concern for uh, black lives in that vein, this passage right here, these are just some of the things that I pay attention to. I don't mind reading white authors, particularly if I don't have to pay for their books. So it's not like I'm funding any of these folks uh, and even the people that read with us. Um, I don't think anybody bought it. I think they were all able to get a copy that they didn't have to pay for either. So we're not making these white people any money. And you get to study the way that white people use words. Sometimes it's, in my opinion, you're studying the way that they practice racism. Uh, so this is uh, from Douglas Brinkley, The Great Deluge. This book was published in 2006. So this is pretty close to when everything happened. I think it came out within the first year. Um, he talks directly about racism. Lots of interesting tidbits. I'm only 100 or so pages into the book, but uh, I'll share as I find things as I go. This one section stands out to me for so many reasons. One of the people that was reading Five Days at Memorial they noted how white people keep talking about animals at the at the hospital. They keep talking about they've got some people brought their cats and dogs and oh my gosh, I can't leave Fluffy behind and she'll drown and what you, I mean and I'm like you have got a whole city underwater. You have got thousands of people who could die or drown who have lost everything and you're worried about a cat? <laughs> like if if we have uh, pet lovers and I mean, hey, I have no beef with animals at all. I'm all about that. But I mean if it is we're in like six feet of flood water, Fluffy is not going to make it. If I got to rescue her or depend on her or what, I mean, get out of here. We can get the pets, you know, later. Anyway, uh, one of our participants in the auxiliary book group, she noted that they kept bringing up these pets. And even sometimes it seemed like the author would shift from them talking about black people as either looters, or they're going to shoot them or whatever. And then it would switch back to, Oh, we got to save Fluffy and Fido, <laughs> the other animals, same trend in the great deluge this is douglas brinkley i'll read a little bit and then if other folks you know have commentary you want to share feel free to do so so this uh is before the storm is hit and he's just talking about what mayor ray nagin is doing now a federal prisoner what they're doing how all this is going so he says at noon on saturday 49 year old mayor c ray nagin staged a press briefing at city hall in new orleans casually dressed his shaved head shining in the media lights Negan strained to seem like a man in charge. A careful observer of human nature could detect, however, by his twitching neck and glazed eyes that he was already unnerved by the prospect of Katrina. A state of emergency had been declared by Louisiana's low-key governor, Kathleen Babineau Blanco, on Friday, August 26th at 11 p.m., and the mayor was nervous. Reports from the National Hurricane Center insisted that Katrina was growing in menace by the minute. Although the track could change, forecasters believe Hurricane Katrina will affect New Orleans, Nagin said tepidly, scratching his trimmed goatee. We may call for a voluntary evacuation later this afternoon or tomorrow afternoon. In emergency preparation, the three levels of evacuation are voluntary, recommended and mandatory 
only the third carries real weight and places the responsibility for evacuation on state and local government office officials. A halting, soft-spoken Nagin said that he needed to talk with his lawyers about what his options were. By stopping short of making a citywide exodus mandatory, he was squandering precious time. Even as Nagin dawdled, the first Louisiana <laughs> SPCA Society for Protection of uh, Protection Against Cruelty to Animals, pets were en route to Houston. That's how the book starts with uh, the pets being evacuated from New Orleans before the people. As politicians go, Nagin was an energetic show horse, not a nuts and bolts workhorse. That very Saturday, in fact, New Orleans Times-Picayune columnist Chris Rose reported on the mayor's latest venture, acting. Just days before Katrina hit landfall in Florida, Negan had made his film debut in an independently produced thriller called Laboo. For five hours in the thick of the tropical storm season, he hung around the Galier Hall, New Orleans Old City Hall, rehearsing lines on taxpayers' dime. He had been cast to play a corrupt Louisiana mayor. Hmm. I thought I was just going to show up, do a cameo, say my lines, and get out of there. Megan complained on the set, and they only pay a buck fifty for this. Rose interpreted the gripe for the Times Picayune readership, explaining that a buck fifty was race speak for $150. New Orleans residents were already familiar with race speak, a confusing inversion of words and ideas all gathered up in a tortured syntax, typically producing a mixed message, but marketed to his constituents as candor. You might call it pandering with seemingly earnest zeal. The net effect of race speak was to sell his inaction as a form of action. After leaving the set, a boastful Negan called out, Hollywood South, baby. A native of New Orleans, Negan had been interested in business at the start of his adult life. Earning an accounting degree at what was then Tuskegee Institute and an MBA at Tulane University. He rose through the corporate ranks to become a vice president of the cable television company Cox Communications, overseeing operations in southeast Louisiana. He also made a reputation for himself as a part owner of the New Orleans Brass, the local minor league hockey team. In 2002, at the age of 46, Nagin suddenly jumped into politics and entered New Orleans' mayoral race. He was an unknown candidate with no record whatsoever. Suddenly, the leading Democrat in the race, he constructed his campaign around a pointedly pro-business, Republican-sounding platform. He soon became a darling of the Times-Picayune and the conservative business elite, an African-American who is a virtual Chamber of Commerce cheerleader when it came to New Orleans' future. Uh, I will stop there. I thought just even in that segment in terms of the way that white people use words, for me, when you go from talking about a white, excuse me, when you go from talking about a black person and comparing them to a horse and then you switch and talk about uh, animals being evacuated uh, from a shelter and what have you, in my opinion, that sort of thing. And it's so much of this in Katrina. We talked about it in the other book. I think that is the way that white people just constantly they associate, they perceive black people as being less than humans animal like 
you're another whole species. You're not a human being. I think that sort of uh, trend, whether they're doing it consciously, whether it happens unconsciously, I think it is consistent. You'll see it on a regular basis. And just I pay attention to even things like that, where you are just routinely going back and forth, talking about black people, talking about horses, talking about animals, talking about black people. Uh, I also thought it was significant to me. It seems very much like not even talking about Ray Negan as a man. He's childish. He's a boy. He's immature. He's not qualified for this. Uh, he, he's compared to an animal, a workhorse, um, a cheerleader, even again, not a man. He's a cheerleader at the end of the day, regardless of what I think about Ray Negan's uh, performance. And he certainly was not perfect as mayor at the end of the day. And he acknowledges this in the book. White people put him there. Why on earth would I fuss at a victim of racism who I know white people placed this person here? If I don't like what they're doing, I need to go and deal with the white people who put him here. And I think he understands that. And that's even would kind of go back to what I was saying earlier. White people are not ignorant about racism. The guy that wrote this book, Douglas Brinkley, he's not ignorant. He certainly is not ignorant about racism. This guy goes back and gives you the whole history of New Orleans before he even gets to the storm and talking about the evolution of slavery, the black codes that they had in New Orleans for the past 200. Yeah, I mean, he breaks the whole thing down, how the different neighborhoods evolved. The white flight that led to Gretna, the people that had guns on the bridge blocking black people from crossing. The author is not ignorant about racism. He's very informed. I just think that that is on display in the way that he talks about black people, specifically Ray Nagin uh, in this point. Again, it's not that I have any uh, affinity for Ray Nagin. Actually, it's difficult for me to even empathize with Ray Nagin because it's just he comes out and he says things that are just not true. Uh, he was uh, he gave a speech in 2011. <clears throat> this was after he was no longer mayor. And he said that they evacuated 95 uh, percent of the city. That is simply not true. I mean, <laughs> they had uh, these are, are easily verifiable statistics. They had 25,000 people at the Superdome, 25,000 people at the convention center. That's 50,000 people right there. And that's not even counting anybody else. Mathematically, it's not possible. They did not evacuate 95 percent of the city. And I'm sure he knows that, that I really don't like people coming out. Anybody just coming out and saying things that are not true. We have enough fiction in the system of white supremacy. We have enough lies. We don't need people adding to that. So it's, it's not, he's not even someone that I'm sympathetic to. I'm just noting the trend and how white people will try and make it seem like it's all this Negro's fault or this Negro was just bumbling and botching everything and just messed everything up and didn't do the right thing, which might be true. But I would submit that white people, they, gen they generally tend to be the ones who are responsible for something like that, particularly when they go out and picked him to be in this position to begin with, it would still be white people are most to blame for whatever he did, correct or incorrect, while he was mayor of New Orleans. And I will stop there. That is my my PSA, the importance of reading. You just you will get a lot more information. You'll learn more. You'll know more. And in my opinion, it will help improve your skill with words, uh, the way even that you notice the way other people, particularly white people, use words skillfully to practice racism. I'll stop there. Folks had commentary. Feel free. You don't. You're not restricted if you don't uh, you're done with Hurricane Katrina and all that. That's fine, too. We got that for Friday. If folks had other commentary or anything else you want to get in. Feel free. Uh, our caller at nine, four, five, one. You should be with us as well. If you had commentary. Yes, sir. Uh, Gus, if the uh, nine, four, five, one uh, doesn't want to make a comment, I, I'm prepared to make one. Oh, I think that's Thomas in New York. So he's he's been here. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, back to the uh, the interview. Uh, 
uh, I did hear the word fair quite a bit mm-hmm. uh, during, during the interview. Uh, but as I mentioned, uh, that, that's something that, uh, you know, those are some of the things that all of us as victims of the system of racism, white supremacy, who are, are attempting to uh, develop some sort of codification needs to uh, learn from. Uh, you, uh, and I think it was a very important that you brought up uh, the, uh, the date of what took place in Birmingham back in 1963 with the four little girls being uh, the victims, the direct victims of an, a horrific act of white racist terrorism. Uh, did you or anybody else, did any one of us here, anybody uh, editorialize uh, that particular event juxtaposed to uh, the event that took place just a few months ago uh, in uh, what was that, uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, where the nine, nine uh, uh, non-white black people were uh, murdered uh, in a, another act of horrific terrorism. Uh, this is why the system of racism cannot be quantified. It either, either it is, exists or it does not exist. And if it does exist, the only answer to it is to neutralize white people's ability to be able to harm us and replace it with a system of justice. Uh, I hear a lot of non-white people who are still hanging on the idea that uh, you can make some improvements with the uh, the system of racist white supremacy, that example alone is just one of many. Uh, uh, that is actually, in my opinion, is the reality of the system of racist white supremacy. In other words, as I mentioned before, either it exists or it doesn't exist. And unfortunately, uh, with the advent of that event taking place in a quote-unquote black church, uh, it gives you in a like in-your-face type of uh, reality that the system of racist white supremacy is still here, live and well, and functioning, uh, as opposed to that horrific event that took place with those, those uh, with the end results of the, of the four uh, children, non-white black children that were murdered, what is it, about over, well, it was over 50 years ago, something like 50, 52, uh, 52 years ago. Yes, I, I was just thinking: Has anybody editorialized that in the, in the newspaper or anything? Anybody read anything on it? Because to me, it's very significant. The, the two, those, that particular event and the event that we all know about that took place uh, uh, what month and a half ago, something like that. Yeah. Thank Can you. I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, yes, actually, to speak to what. Uh, firefighter from Florida just said, absolutely. Um, actually, I'm finishing up an essay where I referenced that exact situation and the fact that um, I believe we just haven't learned from history. Um, I referenced the incident of the four little girls and, and the, basically the fact that had we learned from that incident, we would understand that there is no place that white people hold sacred um, and that they're willing to kill us anywhere, anytime, doesn't matter how old you are. 
And then I also referenced the um, incident with um, Senator Coker and um, also the fact that had possibly had um, Reverend Pinkney been aware of uh, Simon Coker. I don't know if he was um, or not before he passed away, but also um, maybe had he also referenced the Four Little Girls incident and we learned from that, maybe we might have been able to, they might have been able to avoid um, that massacre that took place. So absolutely, that was one of the first things that popped into my mind um, when everything did hit the fan, um, proverbial fan, excuse me, um, was that. So definitely, I agree with you, it's extremely important. And it's really about us learning from history um, and making those proper choices that can be life-saving when we're um, in the presence of white predators. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, it's like, and, and, and this particular terrorist, he, he stood right, he sat right there in front of those non-white people for what, about an hour or so? You know, and, and, and sat there and then opened up on, on, those, on, on, on those, those innocent people, on those non-white people. You know, to, to, to make it, to make the, the just opposed even more relevant. Even more relevant. It's, it, it, I mean, all of the white people in the world, as far as, you know, as, as a Tim Wise type of activity, they have with that. You know, I mean, I don't want to, like I heard Mr. Flores say, I don't want to hear anything about, you know, how hard you're working. How hard you working? Uh, even if you taking, even if you really, even if you really taking risks, I don't hear nothing about that at all. I don't need to hear from you at all as a white person on what you're doing. And and I would say personally, I I, I don't need to hear from a non-white person about what their white friends are doing either. But uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> thank you. But listen, I agree. Actually, I go back to something Francis, Dr. Francis Press Wilson said on on the on the show um, earlier um, that the only thing that a white person could do, in my opinion, is pick up arms and go gun down white people that have been killing black people and terrorizing white people. That's the only thing a white person could do, in my opinion. Outside of that, they need to stay as far away from our struggle as possible, and we need to isolate ourselves, come up with a solution and make it happen whenever we do. But I agree with you. Yes, sir. I agree with everyone. <laughs> everyone said, yeah, y'all right on point with it. Um, yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Gus, because I, I wasn't aware this was the anniversary. I hadn't, you know, um, turned on the television or anything, came right in and put on the show. So I don't, are they even talking about this on, like, CNN and stuff? Um, did Obama do any um, press conferences about this being the anniversary? I'll be surprised if it is. This is not Gus. I'm just saying it. I'll be surprised if somebody did. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Yeah, because, um, yeah, they, so I think um, that was just a horrible event. And um, Dylan Roof, I mean, man, that was just. That was just terrible. I mean, it was. I I just don't see. I don't know what else could happen to 
get people to realize that we're the system of racism and white supremacy. You know, it's yes, like, it's, how many more events can we have? I mean, you're, you're not going by the 800-plus police shootings this year. So far, we still got, what, three more months to go. They're going to top their record from last year. I mean, this is just coming. I don't know what it what it, what is what it's gonna take, you know. I don't. I just don't know. Mister Fuller mentions, and I agree that as non-white people, that we should resist from getting into arguments and debates with other non-white people uh, on the subject. When you see where the person is is not agreeable. Uh, with you, but yet there are a they there are at the same time as another non-white person, which is a victim of racist white supremacy, and VGQ should be uh, rendered. Uh, but also, Mr. Fuller identifies that at the same time that non-white person uh, probably you know they just have to maybe have to wait for them to get a full dose, a full dose of it. Uh, uh, as far as that concerned, personally, in other words, hopefully, hopefully, uh, it doesn't have to come to that with another non-white person because a lot of times those doses are devastating to that non-white person. Uh, uh, but uh, regardless, it, it it would be great, you know, when uh, there is a significant number gets to the point to where we we develop a a uh, uh, an understanding, a collective, individual and or collective understanding of the system of racism, white supremacy, what it is and how it works. Mm. There was Dude, a. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, oh, I, agree with, um, I agree with that because, like, I once wrote us, you know, that black people suffer. They don't suffer. Black people are addicted to white validation. And like what you just said, sometimes with with, with addicts, it takes them to hit rock bottom before they, you know, stop, you know, whatever they're doing, you know, like, you know, it could be a crack addict for years or a heroin addict, and it could be that, of, you know, that time where it's just they have nowhere else to go and they have to stop, you know. It, it, I, that's what I think is, is the problem. I mean, the, the white validation, and uh, especially if you're, in a area eight relationship with the white person, that's that's the ultimate form of white validation. I mean, that you can experience as a black person, in my opinion, is probably to sexually please a white person. You know, look in their eyes, and you know that I mean that has to be uh, ego or whatever dopamine release comes from that. It, it, it's so intense. You know, um, that's all. Go ahead, yes, I'm sorry. Uh, just that there's uh, there was an event today. Uh, I don't know if it'll be if they'll have video footage. Folks can look online, but in Charleston, they had an event at uh, the College of Charleston. Uh, Ties that bind uh, two holy cities. Uh, the event it's uh, featuring some of the survivors of the Birmingham church bombing. 
Uh, they're going to be at the board. They were at the Burke, where I guess it's right now they're at the Burke High School Auditorium, and they're talking about the connection between uh, Charleston, where the uh, shooting happened just a couple months ago, and Birmingham, Alabama. And apparently they had some of the uh, survivors and family members of some of the victims uh, to speak uh, about the relationship between these two cities. But if I find the video, I will post it if they have a re- recording of this event so folks can check it out and see what they had to say. Wow, that's interesting. That is interesting, and it, and it sounds like something that has the potential to be very, very constructive when you start making those type of connections. Thank you. Thank you for that information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, um, this, the Dylan Roof uh, shooting in, in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, to me, is the greatest example of white supremacy being deception and the ultimate danger that can come from their deception. Um, because he had to have really ingratiated himself to them, made them think that he was coming there as a, a so-called fellow Christian looking for some sort of spiritual gratification. And, you know, for him to have done what he did, how he did it, he is the ultimate predator. And to me, that's, that's the ultimate expression of how white supremacy works. They fool you into thinking things are all good, and as soon as your guard is down, they don't roof you. And I think if we can understand that and I keep that in the forefront of our mind at all times, no matter who, who we come into contact with that is white, I think that we'll be leads, leads ahead towards getting, towards getting a solution to this situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sense of white validation, they must have thought to have a young white boy sitting there next to them praying with them or observing them pray and I'm sure they were just ooh man, they were just in their in their glory, you know, especially you know, those devout Christians. And um I think that what he did, in my opinion, and I wasn't alive in the nineteen sixties, but um uh, was worse than the four and I and I hate to compare them in that way, but I mean someone was a coward to put a bomb in and run or or drive away. I mean, this guy sat there, looked them in the eyes, prayed with them, or watched them pray, and still stood up and killed them. That that was, uh, to me, it's like they're they're more bold today than they were even then. I mean, um, just outright. And they got a trip to Burger King afterwards, you know. Uh, That's one of the points I was I was making. That's rewarding. And I wonder, was he handcuffed when they took him to Burger King? I mean, did they uncuff him and let him go inside and eat and, you know, I don't know. Well, 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 it's probably physically impossible. If they went to Burger King to feed him, it's physically impossible for him to eat that Whopper, eat that Whopper with his hands behind his back. So, uh... It's supposed to be a situation to whereas for that type of felonious uh, uh, criminal activity, that is, his hand's supposed to be handcuffed behind his back. Uh, I assume that at the, at the least they had him, and if they did have him handcuffed, his hands was in front, unless they were unless they were being so nice, super nice, where where they were feeding him the whopper. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't, whichever whichever one of those scenarios. It's, it just shows you. It just shows you uh, uh, that Mr. Roof wasn't the only racist that was involved 
in that activity. Yeah, well, uh, uh, Mr. Firefighter, I always thought they took them there because they wanted to hear in detail how it is. Tell us more about it, you know. <laughs> Let's take them to get a burger. You know, I can just see. I mean, um, I wouldn't be surprised. They wanted to hear. They wanted to hear the gruesome details. You know, how how his head bust open. You know, I could just see it. Um, you know, and he probably was just filling the beans. You know, like, hey man, I went in there, I sat there. You know, I could just, and, and they probably had stories from there. They probably got a recording of it, and they probably sit back and play it and laugh amongst each other. Um, yeah, tacky. Another thing that I learned from the from the uh, the interview was when Gus, when you made your example, when you when you attempted to make your example to uh, the guest by the example of the uh, the teacher shouldn't have any type of intimate connections with students, and you gave some other examples, and still you. I, I felt, I, I don't know about you, but I felt that there was a little bit of resistance. Even in that example, I knew when it was my turn to uh, to uh, ask the question that, you know, don't go, I don't, that I don't need to go any further with that person, put that person as far as the, the interview is concerned and just ask, ask what I wanted to know, you know, with, with, with her was whether or not she... Uh, thinks that we're under a global system of racial and white supremacy. Although she was, she didn't go straight to the point. She kind of like uh, maneuvered around from the standpoint of, of saying how whites are also affected by it, which I heard that before from more than one non-white person. But, uh, yeah, that, I thought that was interesting on uh, her answers. I mean, too, because you know, uh, when, uh, I, have, I would encourage folks uh, also to keep in mind, uh, if you're talking to other victims, also kind of keep in mind as well, like, you know, what uh, the way we invest time and energy. Uh, I would say that's something that you should factor in if you uh, how much time you want to spend uh, talking to someone and trying to share constructive information or if you all are going to exchange views. Right. You don't. You have difference of opinion on several things, so you want to exchange views on that. I would also keep keep a clock on that because I think sometimes we can kind of get uh, victims. We can kind of get caught up um, talking or debating or, or trying to convince right. one another or points where we don't uh, agree. And I mean that's fine. You're probably gonna have tons of disagreement, but I don't. That's not something that should take up an inordinate amount of time. So I would definitely kind of keep an eye on the clock and make sure that that doesn't go uh, overboard uh, and trying to convince anyone. Sometimes you can even just plant seeds. I think we talked about that before. You plant an idea. They think about it. That way you're not arguing mm-hmm. and griping. You can give them an opportunity to go. They might take a month. They might need a year to think about mm-hmm. what has been said. And then, oh, wait a minute. Let me reevaluate, you know, what what I was presented with and see if, you know, I need to maybe maybe rethink uh, some of the positions that I've taken. Like, I'm, I'm very much a fan for that because I've just seen a lot of times where we uh, have a lot of fun, as Mr. Fuller says, uh, debating sport enjoyed by all uh, shadow fighting mm-hmm. with other victims and nothing has been produced at the end of all of this. Everybody has had a good time and used up a lot of energy and hasn't accomplished a thing. Mm-hmm. Very, very important. Very important. I, I kept thinking of um, the last time you had Dr. Wellesley on and there was a lady who called in and she recently found out that 
her daughter was in a tragic arrangement and she wanted to disown her daughter. Do you remember that um, episode, guys? Um, Epic. I don't know. Epic. I yeah, do. I, I do. I do. Dr. Francis Cresswell came in and gave the intervention. Um, that is, she said she grew up in this area, and, and I, I mean, I'm not from Washington, she's D.C., but either in the black part, which is most of it, or you're in the affluent part, which is mostly white, I mean, at least 90%. And I was thinking, you know, her, she probably went to the school, you know, it, 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 it probably, then you go to Wisconsin, you know, I mean, I, I could just imagine other than the football and the basketball team, how many blacks probably go there, especially, you know, when you look at the only city with a significant amount of blacks, I think one out of two of them have a felon. I mean, it's just ridiculous in Milwaukee. Um, so, yeah, I, I could see her, you know, her views. You know, having white friends and things of that nature, I, I could just see it. I just it's very curious if any of her white friends ever said, "Hey, you know what? Look out for Susan over there." You know, she she, you know, I was in her room, and because you know they have to, if you're in college, you know, or a lot of people keep those as their friends. Or you know, a college as big as Wisconsin probably has thirty, forty, fifty thousand students in the dorms. That there, there has to be someone who witnessed someone saying something that, as your friend, you'll go back and say, "Listen, man, Susan, watch her. She's acting nice to you, but she says some stuff." You know, I, I just I hope that that planted the seed. You know, to really think of that. You know, my friends never told me. Anything, you know, I, I don't know. Being that I think that when black people are not around, white people talk about black people. I I just can't imagine how a white person being your friend isn't telling you, listen, this person has these really messed up views. I would stay away from them. I wouldn't trust them, you know. I don't know if what I'm saying makes sense, but, you know, I, I just would imagine if that's your real friend, that's what you would get. And if you're not getting that from a white person, you shouldn't have white friends. Yeah, white people just don't engage in that behavior. Um, probably get one more comment in. Um, we can wrap it up, but white people just don't engage in that behavior. I think we've had a lot of non-white people on this program who have one white parent, and I think the pattern has been consistently, I can't even think of an exception to the rule, <clears throat> um, where they've been able to truthfully say that their white parent, like, let them know what the deal is. Like, their white parent, you know, gave them all the details, gave them all the information. This is what you're going to have to be on the lookout for. This is what it is. And, you know, just kind of there, giving them the whole, spilling everything. I, I'm not aware. It's just consistently white people don't even do that for their own children. So much less just some random Negro friend. Uh, that's, that's psh, man, I would not uh, I would not hold your breath reading on that information. Uh, the other caller, were you going to comment? Yes, I was going to say, it looks like, to me, especially if her white friends know each other, while she is judging them individually, they are judging her collectively. And that's why she hasn't heard anything about it. And that's why I asked her the question I asked um, in regards to uh, whether or not there was a war being waged against black people and should we judge them individually when they judge us collectively. 
um, her answer was very interesting in that she alluded to, the, to different events that have taken place and agreed that there was a war, but she did not agree that we should start judging them collectively as they do us. And I believe even in her personal relationships with her friends, I could be wrong, I believe they're functioning in a judgment of her that's collective, which is the white supremacist judgment, and that's why she hasn't heard anything. Yeah, it's definitely difficult for white friends. I do not encourage. I know there are listeners to the cows who still have white friends. Uh, it is, man, <laughs> it is uh, a dangerous situation. And I, I just, again, I'm speaking from personal experience. It has an impact uh, on the way that you view white people, the way that you think about the system of racism, white supremacy. It has an impact. Uh, and if you're going to hang out with them, I would at least make an effort to be honest with yourself and take observations about how this white person demonstrates their understanding of racism. Even if you're not asking questions and what have you just paying attention to the way that they talk, things that they talk about is so many things that have been discussed dealing with racism over the past year or so. You should have had an opportunity for your friend to comment on, you know, any number of cases, Renisha McBride, Sandra Bland, all of Tamir Rice's. I mean, it's just an endless litany uh, of, of incidents where, you know, they would have an opportunity to comment or what have you. Take notes, observe, ask questions. Uh, if this is your pal, your white pal, <laughs> to really uh, understand what it means to be a white person. Uh, folks have questions, problems, feel free. You can drop an email until justice at Gmail dot com. If uh, you need clarification, if you can't find something in the archive, whatever the case may be, uh, just drop a line. We'll hook you up. Uh, that essay that I wrote years ago, uh, Interracial Relationships are sad. Uh, I'll link it on Facebook. I'm pretty sure if you just do a search and sad with two D's, uh, divided loyalties, defending white people. If you just do a search interracial relationships are sad, I'm sure it'll pop up. If you can't find it, let me know. Um, you can, you know, check it out. It might be of some constructive value. Again, we should be here on Friday. Uh, might be back before then, but definitely Friday. Uh, Katrina, after the blood study session number three, we're starting at the end of chapter four uh, as we progress uh, with everything that's transpired over the last decade in New Orleans. Uh, if folks are interested in reading uh, The Great Deluge. Let me know. Might be able to hook you up. It is a longer book, but, you know, <laughs> we can we don't have to read the whole thing in, in two days. Uh, let me know. Might be able to help uh, you find a book if you uh, would like to read. I just got started, so I'm not very far along uh, in it anyway, so wouldn't be a problem. Uh, folks want to read that as we uh, go through Mr. Ribman's book. Any other questions, suggestions, problems, gripes, uh, just drop a line. Uh, we're on Twitter as well, at Until Justice. Uh, you can also catch us on uh, iTunes. You can get the archives on Stitcher. Uh, you can get the archives, should be there as well. Uh, tune in, you can listen live, or you can listen to the archives. And uh, I think the archives for uh, Tune In got updated, so if you check, it'll uh, be a lot of different programs than what was there uh, the past day or so. But feel free, and uh, hopefully the broadcast helps folks get a better understanding of what it means to be white. Overall, the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, again, sobriety would be best. I think our guest, uh, Miss Heron, I think she said that her and the white guy, they went to a club or a bar or whatever the case may be uh, back when they first hooked up. Alcohol, bad decision, intoxicants in general. 
uh, really just want to be uh, sober uh, so that we can make the best possible decisions uh, to take care of ourselves. Uh, there is a war being waged against us. Uh, we just want to be able to think clearly uh, so that we understand what's happening to us. And you just don't want to give white people any sort of uh, justification for coming to harass and molest you. Uh, no alcohol behind the wheel, no intoxicants. Even if you're going to be a passenger or a pedestrian, I would encourage caution uh, just because it's, it's too many examples uh, of that just being, oh, looked like he was staggering, looked like he was under the influence. We had to go and, you know, and then the person ends up, the black person ends up being shot 50 times. So just make an effort to be sober and buckle your seatbelt. Easy one. Do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest level of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.